Thank you for listening to the BJJ Brick Podcast. We'll be bringing you Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and good times. We hope to flatten your Jiu-Jitsu learning curve, help you get the most out of your grappling ability, and meet your goals both on and off the mat. Welcome back, my friends, to episode 172 of the BJJ Brick Podcast. My name is Byron. I'm here with my buddy Gary. Gary, what's happening? You know, I'm just ready for another awesome episode today, so uh, I'm kind of excited. This will take our episode up a level, I believe, maybe give us a little stripe on our podcasting belts if we had one. Uh, this episode is six amazing black belts answer questions about blue belts. Whether you're a white belt, a blue belt, really anywhere, uh, these questions are going to hit home with you. I, I know they do with me. If you're a coach looking at your blue belts, kind of wondering, well, is he ready? Is she is she doing that the techniques right? That sort of thing. Go get some insight. Who do we have, Gary? We've got some amazing people here. I'll list them for you in order. I will try to put time uh, stamps next to their names on the website, but I we're unable to do that now because we don't know how long it takes Gary Knight to record our part. But uh, here they go, uh, Tim Sled, and the order that they appear are the order I recorded them in, so they're in no fancy order or even alphabetical. I just Tim Sled was the first interview I did, then Matt Thornton, Bernardo Faria, Daniel Koval, Henry Akins, and John Will. All six of these guests were some of the most popular guests we've had on the show in the past. So that tells you two great things. Uh, they have a lot of great insight from dealing with us in the past, and we really valued their opinions. We brought them back. And if you want to hear more from any one of them, go find the episodes that they were on previously. A lot going on here this episode. Six separate interviews answering blue belt questions. Uh, the five questions I'm going to ask them are all basically the same. I might word them a little differently from time to time. Uh, that really wasn't my intent. But the five basic questions we asked, we really wanted to get uh, kind of a, a look at what's happening around the globe at uh, gyms and what's happening with blue belts and, and just, just see the current state of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu at this level. Uh, the first question, I'll, and I ask these all in order every time. The first question is, do you have any requirements for a blue belt? And if you do, what are they? And so you'll hear everybody answer that question. Uh, another one, the second one, is how important is it for a student to, to, be, to be able to defend their belt? As in a blue belt getting tapped up by a white belt, is that a big deal? The third question, I wanted to know how important it was for the student to be a good person, like the intangibles. Are they a good teammate? Do they put forth a good effort every time they roll? Are they helping others? That sort of thing. Is that something they look at when promoting a blue belt? The fourth question, do you ever regret giving someone a blue belt? And the fifth and last question I'll ask all six of these black belts is, what advice do you have for the new blue belt? Because I know a lot of you guys are out there, uh, and really this advice that, that they all give could really be heard by anybody and taken and, uh, and, and rolled with. So uh, that's what we have. We have these five questions. Ask of six different black belts, not trying to get them c to compete for the best answer. Just want to see what they're doing. So, uh, Gary, this is going to be a great episode. Really, I'm really proud of uh, the answers that they gave and, and, the, and really happy that they gave us their time yet again to appear on the show. And uh, this will be... Uh, one that uh, anybody who's kind of curious about, when do I get my blue belt? What's it going to be like? Can listen to this and kind of get an idea of what's happening around the BJJ world as far as blue belts. 
Yeah, I mean, this episode is going to be crazy. Uh, probably, I, I, I will bet it's going to be our most downloaded episode ever. Um, you know, six black belts, five questions each. Byron, six times five, that's 30 questions, buddy. <laughs> 30 freaking questions from high-level black belts. Uh, you know, like you said earlier, you know, some of our uh, most downloaded guests just by themselves. So, uh, you know, basically what people have been saying, I've been seeing it all over the interwebs, they're saying this episode is like a podcast on steroids. I mean, it is so crazy that actually the today I got an email from the podcast commission, me and Byron – are going to have to take a drug test. They really think that, uh, you know, because they heard this podcast is on steroids with the six amazing black belts that, uh, um, you know, there's performance enhancing behind it. And uh, the only performance enhancing you'll see on this episode is the six amazing black belts. So definitely stay tuned. You can tell we're supercharged for this, for this episode. And, you know, just a disclaimer, the reason I sound so old has nothing to do with steroids. <laughs> oh, that's, Gary. A, that's a little inside joke. <laughs> for the one emailer who asked if Gary was 70, uh, thank you for that. And uh, no, he, he's quite a bit younger than that. He just uh, evidently sounds to a couple of people maybe like he's a bit up there in the age. But uh, <laughs> Gary and I are both getting to be a little bit older as grapplers go, but we're definitely still enjoying our times on the mat. Speaking of enjoying your times on the mat, you're going to enjoy it if you have an easier road. You know, they say the road less traveled. Um, actually, I don't know what they say about that, but I know there is some quote about that. But to make a better time on the mat, check out Byron Jabara's own personal audiobook. Uh, your first year in BJJ, two and a half hours of content, Byron, you, Byron walking you through Everything you're going to encounter in your first year of jiu-jitsu, which, as we all know, is the toughest year. Um, only $11.99. Like I said, for two and a half hours of content, it's going to tell you how to pick your gym. Um, you know, you don't just go to the first one and just say, hey, here's my money, and unless you only have one gym around. But um, definitely check out different gyms. It's going to um, give you the benefits of jiu-jitsu. I mean, how many people have you know have lost weight, lowered blood pressure, went off pills um, just from training jiu-jitsu? So definitely check it out. We have a link to it on the show notes. Uh, your first year in BJJ, it is called. Yep. You can find it in the show notes. The goal of the book is to get uh, grapplers through that very difficult year. Not just get them through it beat up and worn out, but get them through it with a smile on their face and enjoying the martial art and uh, really incorporate it into their life and uh, doing it for the, you know many, many years down the road. That first year is tough, Gary. The key is what you said, the smile on your face. You want to have fun while you're training. If you do, you're definitely going to stick with it much longer. Another thing that could put a smile on your face was if you are on our email list Man, Gary, it is a pretty exclusive list. There's only one or two ways you could get on this list. You could go to our website or you can go to our Facebook page and type in your email address and bada boom, bada bing, you're on the list. And all that happens then is you get the show notes emailed to you every week when they come out. So if uh, you're already on there, check your list. You've got the timestamps next to the uh, Black Belt's names if you want to fast forward to one in particular. I really urge everybody to listen to all of these. Uh, there's a lot of insight. Uh, obviously, you might have a favorite person or two on here. Listen to that. But everybody that we have on here is a top-notch guest on the podcast. And I really urge everyone, if you've come this far to listen to the to one or two people talking today about these Blue Belt questions, listen to all of them. But uh, the show notes will be in your email inbox 
with the title BJJ Brick Podcast. So uh, check it out, please. Yep, like Byron was talking about, you know, don't just listen to one of the black belts. Check all six of them out. You think about ice cream. Everybody loves Neapolitan ice cream. That's three different flavors. Imagine this is like Neapolitan ice cream on steroids, six different flavors. So definitely make sure you check out each and every one of them. And as we said earlier, you will definitely leave this show with a smile on your face. First off, Gary, I've never known anybody who eats the strawberry out of the Neapolitan ice cream. But uh, And all you do when you get the vanilla is you mix it with the chocolate and you make it a chocolate ice cream. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, not a big fan of the Neapolitan, but uh, I get your uh, get your example uh, you keep referencing steroids, Gary. They will get suspicious of your uh, new uh, performance on the mat. So uh, you might be careful about that, my friend. Well, I'm just saying I, we've never had an episode like this. I've never been so excited. So uh, that's kind of why I'm a little uh, amped up today. Yeah, that's not not the performance enhancing drugs amping you up. The episode yeah. is. Well, it's hard for me to get amped up, especially since I talk like I'm 70. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to have a stroke while we're talking, you know, so I can't get my heart rate up too high. If you were 70, Gary, you could have been walking uh, a couple of miles every day and you would have walked thousands of miles. I like that. Speaking of walking thousands of miles, uh, we got a quote here this week. Byron, who is the quote from since I can't pronounce the person's name? I believe the quote is from Lao Tzu. Lao Tzu. Okay. I uh, would have never even got close to that. Um, But the quote do the difficult things while they are easy and do the great things while they are small. A journey of a thousand miles must begin with a single step. And, you know, so true. Our, our jiu-jitsu journey, um, you know, it's thousands and thousands of miles. But it begins with us showing up the very first day, getting on that mat. We have to do the small things. It's We can't just fast forward uh, like we can in movies and get to the black belt stage. We have to do, you know, all the small things. We have to take all the small steps and, and you know, we got to start at the beginning. Um, there's no there's no moving in front of the line. We've got to put in our time. We've got to work. We've got to, you know, come to class. We've got to come to practice. We've got to be a great teammate and someday down the road after a thousand miles of taking steps, you're going to have that black belt around your waist. This is a famous quote, at least the last part of it. A journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. The first part I don't hear as often, do the difficult things while they are easy and do the great things while they are small. That is not winning a giant tournament. That's a big, difficult thing. Do it while it's easy. That's going to class every day and training. That's getting the, the most out of your drilling. That's getting the most out of your sparring and, and really uh, pushing yourself. Those, those aren't nearly as difficult as winning uh, the biggest tournament of your life, but they are things you could accomplish today. You know, if you just got your blue belt or you're getting super close to that, is the next journey of your step that stripe or actually that blue belt? No, the next journey of your step is to go to class today and to train hard. And it doesn't matter if you get your blue belt, you expect it next week on, on the weekend, or you, or you don't have a clue when you'll get it, or you, or you expect it next week and you don't get it for another year. All of those are okay. Uh, just keep going. Keep taking that journey of a 1,000 miles. That's really what jiu-jitsu is. It's a long journey. Uh, don't worry so much about the little things. I think uh, one little risk we run in this episode is, is making a big deal out of being a blue belt. It's just a belt. 
it's just about Gary. I, I know you feel the, you feel the same way about that. It's just it doesn't really matter. You're just training. You're getting better than you were the day before. It shows a a mark of your accomplishment. It shows uh, your dedication to your craft and your hard work that you've put into it. But in reality, it's just a color of material that goes around your waist. It's just a small step in the journey. Even every belt I've gotten is just a small step forward. I think this is a great quote, but it, the, the heart of it says, do today what you can and don't worry about uh, what's way down the road. So if, if you did just get your blue belt, don't worry about being a black belt. Just work on being a little bit better of a blue belt today than you were yesterday. And you know what? There'll be days when you feel like you're worse. Just that day, worry about ending the week at a positive. You know, there'll be weeks where you feel like, oh man, this week was kind of bad. I it didn't really go that way for me. Work on having a good month. At the end of that month, you're better than you were last month. Uh, just try to get better a little bit at a time. That is the long journey. It's a thousand miles, but it does begin with a short step. Or it begins with getting off the couch and going to train. So definitely get off the couch, get in the car, drive to the gym, and train. Like Byron said, some days you can have a rough day. Even if you feel like you didn't have a great day on the mat, you were on the mat. You're getting better. So definitely show up, get to class, and you're going to learn. And those are your small steps. And they're going to pay huge dividends in the long run. Gary, we've got a couple pieces of good news other than just the uh, huge in- interview portion of our podcast first piece of good news is we have an article by our friend joe thomas to share with everybody the second piece of good news we have a new matt tales to share uh with the audience uh we're going to call it thank you we're going to call it mouse war and uh that'll be at the end of the show stay tuned for that but right now i I thought you were going to call it mouse in the house (laughs) i like that gary maybe we'll call it mouse in the house i don't know okay or mouse mats okay Uh, We'll call it something, but it's our newest, latest, greatest Matt Tales, and uh, it'll be at the end, towards the end of the episode. But for right now, our friend Joe Thomas has provided us with the Beach Day Brick article of the week, and it's actually on our website because he's been submitting articles to us, and we're very grateful to have somebody uh, of his writing ability and his thought to uh, to provide these. We're calling this article Production Now and Production Long Term. And uh, Joe was reading the book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, and he was kind of thinking about the idea in it of production and production capacity and having a balance between that. What does that mean? That's kind of a confusing to just say those words and, and understand what that is. Production is uh, what you could do right now. So, you know, I could, I could probably do 30 push-ups right now. But oh, my, I doubt you can. <laughs> I can probably do eight push-ups right now. That's but more like it. My production capacity is how many I'll be able to do in the long term. You know, can I increase? It would be smart for me to do nine and injure myself and not be able to do another push-up for a whole month, or to be smart for me to do uh, a little varied training, uh, some stretching, and invest time in myself, not just to do uh, the maximum amount all the time. And he gets into really, he does a really good job, way better than my poor example of uh, this production uh, capacity and just production. And you, you've got to make it to where your capacity for learning jujitsu is high. You can't just focus all the time on learning today, learning, to, to, to maxing out every day at the 
uh, expense of tomorrow's learning. And you know that I think that you know is very important. I see that happen a lot of times when somebody first starts. Um, you know, they're trying to learn so much. They're they're training. You know, twice a day, five days a week, and it seems like it really helps in the short term. But in the long term, I, I do see a lot of a lot of people that train a lot get burnt out. Um, they they start getting injuries, and you know, especially for an older grappler like myself, um, yeah, the injuries really start popping up the more I train. I do need to invest in my body, kind of like um, you know, make sure my body heals, make sure I don't. Uh, I don't know necessarily know if I believe in overtraining. Um, you know, everybody's got different opinions on that, but I, I do notice if I if I train a lot without resting or, or what it, what my rest is is working out or doing some sort of cardio or playing basketball on the side. It still keeps my heart rate up. It still burns calories. It still keeps me active, but I'm not taking the beating. I'm not getting my arms twisted. I'm not getting my my neck twisted. Uh, um, so. I, I still um I, I stay healthy, which allows me to keep the time on the mat. Um, so, but that is one thing I do see a lot. I just see uh, seems like a, a lot of burnout. People not thinking about the long term, just uh, realizing what's coming in the short term. Yeah, and you know I can think of yourself, Byron, and myself. We've both been training, jeez, uh, fourteen years, and I can. I, I know for myself, I have never really taken a, a time off more than a week. And if I've taken a week, it was just to to help my body just, you know, I was kind of beat up or something. But even when I say I took a week, I've probably taken four weeks in 14 years. And one time I was off the map for about 30 days with a rib injury. But I can think of you too. I, I can't really think of seeing you off the mat for a long time. And even when I do have small injuries, I find a way to train around it. You know, there's numerous times I've hurt my hamstring. It's hard to play the top position and, and push, but most of the time I can work the bottom game, you know, use my good leg as a hook and, and play half guard on that side. And, uh, so I just think that I'm going to have better gains making sure that I do have time on the mat. Uh, that I'm that I'm there, that I'm healthy, and that I show up. If you were training seven days a week, you're going to be uh, at risk for the overuse injuries, the fatigue, the burnout, uh, not letting your body heal. And uh, you know, younger grapplers might be able to pull off seven times a week. They might be able to pull off you know two a day, a couple of times, and do more than seven a week. I don't know what people are capable of. I know I'm not. I know if I if I train ten times a week, you know, in the morning and again in the evening. Um, I'm way more likely to get injured, and that's when my my capacity to produce my own jujitsu would plummet. Like Gary was saying, I've never really had a serious injury training. Fourteen years is what Gary's. I think that's right. That's that's a long time. No serious injury, no surgery required on on this guy. Yeah, I've taken some weeks off to to, to heal from being banged up, but uh, that's about it. Uh, so I I think we've both been pretty fortunate and. Uh, cautious at times with keeping our capacity to continue training uh, as a priority. Uh, you know, it's not fun to sit off, you know, and not train, you know, for a week. But I know that there are days when I'm like, man, I don't feel like I got it today. I feel like uh, if I go today, I'll probably come home hurt. You know, I'm already pretty banged up. I'll, I'll train in two or three days and, and come back. And that's me protecting my ability to produce my own jujitsu 
in the long term because a serious injury could be a game changer. Another way that Joe uh, looks at this example and it, it kind of brings it home as far as like how many different ways your capacity to train jiu-jitsu could be affected. If Joe trained all the time, five, six days a week, he's got a lovely wife at the house and she's going to be like, Joe, <laughs> you're putting jiu-jitsu ahead of me. And then he's going to have to say, you know, sorry, honey, as I know you, or, you know, just kidding. But he's, he'd be putting jiu-jitsu in front of his wife, which long-term that's a fail. He, his wife supports his jiu-jitsu. She likes him to go train. She, she sees that it does good things for his life, but he's not making this a seven day a week event where he's gone all the time from home and they have no free time. They have no time with his, he has no time with his spouse. That would cut deeply into his long-term ability to uh, do jujitsu and have a happy wife. Happy wife, happy life has been my experience, Gary. Guard that aspect of your, uh, of your life. Maybe it's work. Maybe if you train all the time and you can't keep a steady income, that's going to affect your ability to train jujitsu because it costs money. You know, uh, there are a lot of side things like this that you have to look about, look at off the mat and protect yourself and your ability to train long term. And, and the one with with his wife was a great example. Uh, employment uh, is another thing. Education. If, if you're going to school right now and this, let's say you're in college and your parents are helping you out and you're failing, but you're doing great on the mats. They're probably not going <laughs> to like to support you uh, as you fail through college. You know, you need to back off just to a tiny bit. You're primarily a student right now. Uh, it, it it keeps that going. You know, it's not always now is not always yeah. the best time to dedicate yourself 100. percent It might be for you. Somebody right now, maybe you go all in. I don't know, but uh, but you need to take that smart evaluation of the situation you're in. If you are failing in college, but your jujitsu is doing great, definitely check uh, gym classes in college and see if they have a intro to BJJ. If they do, take that class. It'll definitely help your grade point average. You know, that's just my tip. If they don't, but, sign up and teach it. Yeah, start your own class. Uh, and that way, maybe you'll get your college paid for, too. Uh, but, hey, I love the way uh, Joe sums it up, the very last paragraph. Each person's jujitsu is a different journey. The off-the-mat off investments that you need to make may be completely different than Joe's, but the fact remains you will need to invest in production capacity if you want to continue to see production or process. So definitely invest in the capacity and you will get you will have progress. So uh, take care of yourself, take care of your mind, take care of your education, uh, take care of your, your job, uh, take care of your wife, and uh, and you will see that progress. Yeah, you've got to take care of the things off the mat to keep your mat life happy. So, uh, yeah, a lot going on there. Thank you, Joe, for that. And he said, he tells me he's working on another article and I'm excited to see what he has in the works. I can honestly probably say this is my favorite article we've done. It kind of hit me, I guess, too, while I was reading it. Kind of, uh, kind of the same approach that I have. So, uh, I really like this article. Yep. We did not read the article to everybody just now. So, uh, go ahead and check it out. And read it for yourself and see if we did it justice, which we probably did not. But uh, well, we don't do much justice. <laughs> we do our faces justice while we talk on the podcast, and you can't see us. Other than that, it's uh, it's it's pretty rough. That's why we're bringing on six amazing black belts to talk for us because Gary. Sometimes we struggle, but these guys we, got it more going than on. sometimes. But we, yeah. But hey, now is the time. Six amazing black belts. 
he is the most interesting grappler in the world. He is so good at getting hooks in that he won the 2012 Bassmaster Classic without using a rod or a reel. He washes his belt, yet somehow it retains all the knowledge he has gained. He attended a woman's only seminar, and his only disguise was his charm. It took two hours for someone to notice his beard. I don't always listen to podcasts, but when I do, I prefer the BJJ Brick Podcast. Stay sweaty, my friends. Tim, do you have any uh, requirements for a blue belt? And if you do, what are they? Yes, I, I do have um, I do have a minimum requirement list that I do, and then I do a rite of passage with uh, uh, all of the guys that are guys and girls that are getting ready to get promoted to blue belt. Um, my system, I have a proprietary set of uh, techniques that I require they know. Um, what I mean by that is, you know, I put to, I throughout my years of jiu-jitsu started boiling down what do I feel are the, the necessary fundamental building blocks uh, for good jiu-jitsu. And those are the core techniques of small axe jiu-jitsu. And I require all of my students that are going to be a blue belt that they have to be able to perform those techniques on demand and they also have to be able to teach those techniques without um, sort of notice that they're going to have to teach them. I, I do. I don't believe. I don't use. I guess I. I believe in testing in some way, shape, or forms. But I don't use testing per se. But what I do is I give all the students the uh, the core techniques right around the time they're a three stripe or four stripe white belt. I give them a list of that and say, hey, guess what? You're you're pushing toward blue. Uh, so you need to get ready. You need to know these techniques inside out, upside down, and backwards. If they've been coming and participating in the curriculum, then they're going to know it. Uh, but uh, I make sure that they polish up, that they work with training partners in the gym to get ready for that. Uh, then on what I call a pre-test day, uh, they come in. I call out the moves. They rep the moves as many times as they can rep the moves in the amount of time I give them. And then I'll direct them without them knowing what technique they're going to be uh, given. I direct them to teach a technique to the classes if we're all first day white belts coming in. Uh, and it's been the course of performance in my gyms that you know all the black, brown, purple, and existing blue belts come to these pretests because it's a rite of passage. It's like a bond of brotherhood. It's usually about four hours long, uh, so everybody's exhausted. Uh, and 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 remembers their pretest and loves it and loved it and put sees the value in it. So they come to this, but then they have to teach this group group of um, their mentors uh, how to do a technique, whether it's Americana or armbar from the guard or you know a sweep or you know uh, how to attack the back to get the rear naked choke or something like that. They have to teach that as if we're all white belts first day. Because my program, I'm not looking to build blue belts. I'm looking to build black belts. So um, from the outset, they're seeing that there's more to this than just uh, attendance. Could you maybe give us uh, one or two examples of what some of these techniques that uh, you require on here that they be able to demonstrate? Sure. I mean, uh, it's not. there's nothing surprising on there. It's, it's probably going to be shocking to people how... 
uh, how few there are. I mean, there's a lot, but, uh, you know, there's nothing shocking or surprising on the list. You know, I, I've, I've gone to different schools and seen, and this is, this is a very common way to do it, that they, that they have sort of, you need to know, two guard passes, three sweeps, four submissions from cross-eye, two submissions from mount, three submissions from back, et cetera, um, before you can get your belt. And then they leave it open for the students to find what they want there. That's a, that's a, a valid way and a very commonly used way uh, for, for people to sort of set it up. Mine's different. I, uh, I have a specific bent toward the fundamental techniques that you're going to use from white through black belt, um, and uh, and so for for example, they definitely need to know every position and how to use good posture in that position, how to hold that position well. So I talk a lot about that in my classes, so they are familiar with you know hand placement, grip placement, pressure placement, all of these different components, uh, posture breaking if you're on the bottom. Um, and, and so they've got to know that uh, and have to be able to explain that. But then as far as like, the techniques are concerned, it, it wouldn't surpri- surprise you that you know, I expect them to know how to do an armbar from the mount, an Americana from the mount, a uh, cross-collar choke from the mount, you know, from closed guard. And this is, this is not exhaustive. I'm just giving you examples. They would need to know uh, a palm-up, palm-up, cross-collar choke from guard, a palm-up, palm-down, collar choke from the guard, Kimura, armbar from the guard, sweeps, uh, some very basic sweeps from the guard. But I'm not looking for them just to know them. I'm looking for them to have a, a pretty refined level of knowledge of them and ability to perform them. Um, so, yeah, I don't have like, uh, you know, they, they, a blue, my blue belt requirements would not have, you know, very many half guard sweeps. Uh, in fact, I don't even think there's a half guard sweep in my blue belt minimum requirement. They're, they're more than welcome to know far beyond the minimal requirement, and they would know a lot more. But for the test or for the pretest, you know, they're gonna, it's going to be, it's going to be the building blocks. Um, and, uh, you know, basically what you would expect to know if you took uh, a fundamental jiu-jitsu class for 18 months. Tim, how important is it for a student to be able to defend their belt and looking a little deeper into that, is it a legitimate promotion uh, if you're promoting the purple belt who still occasionally gets tapped by blue belts? Uh, defending defending one's belt, uh, it kind of depends on the student. If you've got a student who their point of jiu-jitsu is to be a competitor, then how they perform against other members at their rank or above their rank seems to matter. Um and you know that's why there there are many different uh, fruits in the basket, and we need to compare apples with apples and oranges with oranges. Um, you know, if you go to some of the top competitor academy gyms where the competition room is breeding champions, and people are going there for the purpose of becoming a champion, um, you can probably expect that uh, they're belts are going to be tougher than the belts at sort of a hobby gym or, you know, even maybe a, you know, a gym that's uh, got a, just has a different, the, the students have a different emphasis. They have families, they have kids. They're not, you know, they're not, their goal in life is not to be, you know, a world champion on the highest level with the highest organization. So if your student is in your gym and they're, and they express to you, 
sir, I want you know I want to be I want to be a champion. Uh, then you do a disservice to them if, even if they have the technique, even if they have the time and grade, even if they have sort of the the knowledge base, they're not performing against you know they're they're not able to survive against roles against their peers or or people that are a little bit underneath them. So I think it does matter to be able to defend your belt if defending your belt is what you have to do. Um, but I don't think it's a necessary requirement uh, to be able to survive. Uh, every role with the next belt down. You know, so if you're a white belt, you need to be beating all the white belts before you get to a blue belt. Or uh, you, uh, to get a purple belt, you need to be beating all the whites and the blue belts to get your purple belt. I don't. I think that. I don't think that that's necessary. And and I think that that would be a daunting critique on the martial art, given that um, you know we aren't really. If you're training jujitsu for self-defense, then you're not training jujitsu to fight jujitsu fighters. You're training jujitsu to fight you know, thugs or people, bullies or whatever you're training to fight them for. If you're training jiu-jitsu for sport, but you're not going to be a competitor, you're just trying to get good at a sport, then, you know, you're not, you're not, you know, you're not, you're not training to, um, you know, you're just trained to be the best you can be. And so your belt is your belt. Uh, and, you know, age and time and responsibilities in life, all of those can be factors that weigh into it. Um, and to say, if you could, if you get beat by one, two, or three people who are a belt lower than you, so you can't get promoted to that belt, you could lock somebody into a belt for life because of their uh, their um, I don't know maybe their their responsibilities, uh, their jobs, their family, or whatever, and then you know that discourages them and doesn't help them promote the art, even though they may be quality instructors or quality people or great leaders or or motivators or something like that. So I think it kind of depends upon the student. Uh, now, I, you know, I do think as you go up the ranks, there's going to be a, po- a point where you should not be getting caught in silly things or common things from certain grades lower than you. Um, now, does that mean you're not ever going to get caught? You know, no. I think if you're training your training partners correctly, and if you're playing the boundaries of your abilities, you should be getting caught sometimes. Even as a first-degree black belt, if I'm training with a blue belt and I'm actually training to try to get better, um, you know, I can't just play my A game on a blue belt because I'm not going to really get that much better. I know their timing. I know what they're thinking. I know what I'm going to be able to do. But I may need to go deep within a mistake. You know, I may need to let my arm be a long way from my body and explore how to get out of that and if I'm late I'm going to get beat and does that mean I need to take a stripe off my black belt or move myself down to brown belt or move myself to purple no I mean it's all part of jujitsu but if I'm if I you know it would be odd for me to be a first degree black belt and you know some having 18 plus years of jujitsu and having somebody come in uh, and being healthy that that also being there and then have somebody who's done jiu-jitsu for two years just annihilate me or, or beat me repeatedly with a basic technique that I should know the defenses to. So there's a lot of factors that go into whether and how a person should be able to defend your belt. Blue belt is the toughest belt for jiu-jitsu people because by the time you're a blue belt, you've done jiu-jitsu long enough that probably your peer group outside of jiu-jitsu knows that you train jiu-jitsu you're starting to have confidence with your jiu-jitsu, and you're most likely to be tested by people who want to feel your jiu-jitsu but 
don't want to come to class and do it, you know. So, you know, your your family reunions, you know, you're going to end up wrestling with your 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 jerky cousin who wants to see how tough <laughs> you are, you know. And, uh, so, the I, I like to I use this this saying a lot at my classes and seminars. I say, you know, I, I doubt anybody in this room is ever going to need jujitsu for self defense. I mean, most of you are not going to get in a fight. Uh, and most likely, if you do get in a situation where you're going to need to do jiu-jitsu, it's going to be at a family reunion because you're going to be tested. But because, but because we're martial artists, you know, we're, you know, by a certain point, you know jiu-jitsu so well that you're going to look at a, a potential altercation and say, it's not worth it. I'm, this, I don't want to hurt this guy that bad. That's funny the the uh, the family union self defense situation. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's. Uh, I speak from experience. <laughs> we'll leave that one alone for now. Maybe talk about that one in the future. Tim, how many uh, intangibles uh, come into play when you're thinking about promoting someone to blue belt? Something like, uh, are they a good teammate? Are they uh, putting up a good effort? How is their attitude? Are they helping others? How do these come into play when promoting someone to blue? For me, I can only speak for me, um, you know, there's a lot to that. Uh, there's a lot to the intangibles. Um, I have, I've been fortunate. When, whenever I've run a gym, I've either had a, another full-time job that pays the bills or my gym was so successful that I didn't feel any sort of pressure to promote somebody to keep them as a student. So, you know, other, other people I know, other instructors I know, other gym owners I know sometimes struggle with that. You know, they've, they're afraid of losing students if they don't do promotions on a on a on a, 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 a regular basis or something. But I've never had that that pressure because uh, I've always been able to support myself independent of promoting people. So with that, I've been able to demand uh, a high quality individual to be promoted. So what, and what I'm looking for is I am looking for leaders. I'm looking, you know, before I, you know, and it's one of the qualities as I stripe guys up on a white belt, these are the things I'm looking for. You know, the first couple stripes are persistence, perseverance. Um, they keep coming. They keep, they're, they're starting to use jujitsu. They're breaking habits that I've asked them to break. Um, you know, they're, they're listening to instruction. They're using technique when they roll. Uh, you know, a two-stripe white belt in my system still going to be getting beat up, still going to be getting thrown around, still going to be getting, um, you know, the raw end of the deal or being the nail more than the hammer, but they're they're progressing. And then the second, or the third and the fourth stripe, the second set of stripes that go on the white belt are about how is this person engaging their training partners? How are they adopting technique? What is their weapon selection? How is their weapon selection looking? How hungry are they? Are they really catching the jiu-jitsu bug, or are they using jiu-jitsu as fitness? You know, um, and, and and so I'm watching as a, as a person comes up in my system. I'm watching them for those qualities, and by the time I'm telling them that they're ready for uh, the pre-test for jiu-jitsu, you know, there's probably been a new student walk in, and I've observed this person help them. Uh, without me coaxing or court or court controlling or coordinating it on uh, they've done it uh, on their own um, so I, I am looking for leaders I am looking for people that when they go someplace and say hey I got my blue belt from Tim sled you know that I would like for the the common thought to be oh this guy's gonna have really a really good idea of how these moves work 
He's going to be a good person. She's going to be able to uh, execute these techniques well. Um, you know, she's going to be trustworthy. He's going to be able to. Um, uh, he's just going to be a genuine good person. Um, and you know, to date, I've never, I've never promoted anybody to believe that wasn't that. And you know, it's it's the same sort of thing. Is my hope is that everybody I promote to blue stays in the game forever. Now, that hasn't always been the case. The blue belt curse occurs, but um, what I'm doing is I'm priming all of them for what one of my purple belt requirements is: is that, that before I'll allow somebody to be promoted to purple belt, um, you know, I want to know that they are in it for the long haul. And to date, I believe my purple belt percentage is 100% are still training. They're either black belts, brown belts, or purple belts still. And, you know, I know they're in it for the long haul. They've caught the bug. They are invested in their progress to black belt and beyond. And so blue belt, I'm still priming them for that. I'm trying to educate them that they, uh, that jujitsu isn't about blue belt, that I'm not building blue belts, I'm building black belts. And it's just one of the graduations. Tim, as a bit of a follow-up to this one, it, all the people that you're promoting to blue belts uh, seem to be uh, good, well-rounded people off and on the mat. Uh, so if somebody is coming to class, they're more there for themselves. They don't really socialize. They don't really uh, – they come in, they train jiu-jitsu, and they, they don't go any extra. Would it take them a little bit longer to, to be getting that blue belt, or are you just kind of weeding out the ones that are actually uh, having negative traits? No, it, it would take it would take them longer, and it would probably take me doing some coaching with them on why it's taking them longer. You know, I I, I tell all the students that come in, you know, I tell them that uh, look, jujitsu is a long, tough haul where your ego is going to be smashed, rebuilt, smashed again, rebuilt, and you're going to find, uh, uh, despite it being an individual martial art, an individual so to speak, you're going to find that the, the strength is in numbers. And so when somebody comes in, I don't, it, honestly, I don't care if they can kill every purple belt in the room. If they're, not, uh, if, if they're not showing good behavior, following the rules, uh, taking care of their teammates, um, or, uh, you know, just if, they're, if there's something about it, if they're out doing stuff they shouldn't be doing, outside of the gym and I find out about it, usually that means they get kicked off the team, but yeah, but you know, maybe it's something that's not so bad but it's still kinda kinda shady. Um, or just, just sort of disrespectful or whatever. Sometimes it's as much as posting weird stuff on Facebook that is disrespectful or doesn't doesn't speak well to the to their character. Then I'll I'll have a conversation with them and so, you know, this is, you know, one of the things I expect from my blue belt is X. And, you know, I, I expect you to be taking, I don't expect you not to be hurting people. You're a fantastic athlete. You're, you're tough. You did, you know, you did 22 years of uh, garage wrestling and, and, uh, and back barn MMA. You're tough. Good for you. But to be a blue belt under my system, you've got to be tough, technical, and a good person. So you're tough. I'm going to make you technical. But to get a blue belt, you gotta you gotta start doing the right thing. Okay, thanks for sharing that insight into what's going on there with your blue belts, Tim. Have you ever regretted giving somebody a blue belt? No, 
No, I've never regret. I've never, I've never regretted any blue belt that I've handed out because I do so much to get ready for that process. I've had people that frustrated me because I gave them the blue belt and then they either quit or bounced to a, you know, a different place and, you know, used my name to sort of support their their progress some in a in a in a different either town or gym or something like that and that frustrated me but that's on me. Um, you know, I I. I I don't regret any belt that I've handed out because they've all been they've all gone through a process and a grading and uh, a team evaluation because you know my my students are also involved in those pretests and you know uh I have all of the the upper belts fill out an evaluate they fill out an evaluation of the person and give critique uh after that pretest and I usually I was good about it early on and haven't been so good about it in the last couple of years, but I would give the evaluations to the test takers and then they would, they'd be able to know what they needed to work on. Um, so usually it's been, it's been a, a peer approval process, not just from me. What advice do you have for the new blue belt? So for the, for a, for a new blue belt, uh, protect your neck, um, keep your elbows close, um, uh, fight grips, and realize that now that you've got that new blue belt on your back, uh, all the white belts that are have been white belts for a while are going to be testing themselves on you. So don't take it to heart. Don't don't get frustrated. Um, don't focus on wins and losses. Focus on what you've just done. You've just achieved the first graduation of many in jiu-jitsu, and there's a lot more to learn, and there's a lot more time that you're going to be a nail. Um, Blue belt, in my opinion, is one of the toughest belts in jiu-jitsu because, you know, in that rank, in that in that division, you have people that just walked out of a black uh, out of a white belt, and then in that rank you have people that are overdue for a purple belt. And a purple belt, in my program and all the programs that I've come up under, uh, a purple belt is an elite belt. Um, you know, these are these are people that know jiu-jitsu. Um, you know, back in 2005, Master Kaiki told me that the the only difference between a, a purple belt and a black belt is strategy, tightness, and timing. And you know, so you're dealing with, um, you know, somebody who's basically just walked out of a beginner belt, entering into a division where there could be somebody that's essentially got the skill set of a black belt if that person knew how to use them, use those skills appropriately. So um, it can be really tough. You can. Uh, a blue belt in a gym can often start getting the big fish in a small pond uh, mentality, but that's why you know open mats and cross training and having you know good coaches uh, is important because that you know uh, you, you got to realize there's there's going to be a lot of people that are bigger and badder. So uh, my advice to a blue belt is stay the course, stay stay invested. You know, don't put a time frame on the next graduation. Uh, instead, you know, really work on the next process. Uh, in different schools, the next process is different things. Um, but uh, new blue belts in my system, uh, they just need to keep working on their on, on developing the complexity of their systems. Because I'm a systems coach, so uh, you know, we work uh, many different systems, and I expect the blue belts to be able to execute 
the techniques and understand the techniques and the history of the systems. But by Purple Belt, they need to be flowing through the systems and linking the systems together. So that should be their focus. Is Could you maybe jump in a little bit deeper about what you mean by uh, developing the complexity of their systems? Sure. Um, um, I'm going to build a system off the top of my head. Let's say uh, you're in the closed guard. Um, you have a, a hand on the elbow and a hand in the cross lapel. Uh, you reach up to take a cross-collar choke, and the person defends the cross-collar choke. So you move from that to a scissor sweep because uh, the person was defending the cross-collar choke. Their hands are up around their neck protecting them. You've swept them. You're now in the mount position, and you then work uh, uh, to either address the the hands that were protecting their neck with either an armbar from the, the mount, or uh, if they're defending in a different way, you can attack to Americana. Well, that's a very basic system of attacks uh, that link from being in a bad position the bottom to a positive position on the top to a submission. Um, and it's a very simple, it's, it's, a, it's a, 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 a gi system, but you can make it into a no-gi system if you just use, instead of using the, uh, um, the lapels for the choke, you use control of the back of the head or maybe even a guillotine to sort of get the same reaction from the person on top. Um, but it's a very basic system, um, all simple jiu-jitsu techniques. Um, and then what you want to do is you want to uh, add to add complexity to that. You can you can add complexity to the end so that once you get to the once you get to the mounted position, um, instead you're you're rolling the person and taking their back instead of doing the arm lock as an option, or you're attacking the Americana. They reach up and defend, and then you're gonna you, so you start to link one two threes uh, to each little step. So your system can become the the tree of options from each position or technique can grow more complex even if it's all basic it can become more complex and that's that's really when i look at high quality jiu-jitsu practitioners you know the guys that when i train with them it's like man they're not beating me with you know magic wands and fairy dust they're they're beating me with jiu-jitsu how are they beating me with jiu-jitsu and it's that they ha- they they get me in a place where they've got four moves i've got one and if i make the wrong move i either get tapped or if i make a different move then i open up five options for them to attack me so it just consistently gets worse and worse and worse for me but it's all it's all jiu-jitsu it's all basic jiu-jitsu it's just a matter of how did they organize their systems to draw me into a point where I couldn't defend anymore. Um, I was rolling with J.T. Torres when he came to Indiana this summer, and uh, you know he and I had a, a great match. He he slaughtered me, tapped me, and you know he didn't use anything outside of you know blue belt my blue belt minimum requirement jujitsu. Uh, it was all basic jiu-jitsu. And so you say, well, you're a first-degree black belt. How does a guy who, uh, you know, how, how does a guy like JT beat me with that? I should be able to defend all of those techniques because I've been doing jiu-jitsu for 18 years. Well, the way he did it was he he had me defending in in one way, one system, while he was operating off of a chain of another system. 
and I, I I couldn't keep up. He got ahead, and you know, and uh, and so I had I had to submit. And that's what we're doing in jujitsu. Is if you should always be honing your technique, but also honing it within the uh, sort of organized patterns or systems, which is what I call organized patterns or systems that uh, that make them function at a high degree of success. And so a blue belt, you can't expect a blue belt to have, you know, um, uh, a very complex system of attack. They may have a very effective system of attack. You know, they may be doing uh, knee slice pass from uh, from an open guard into uh, 100 kilos into uh, Ezekiel choke. You know, one, two, three. I mean, and, and I know some great big blue belts that will knee slice pass, hug the head, hug the arm, um, and then stuff a sleeve in, and then stuff their hand under your chin and choke you with an Ezekiel. You know, that's highly effective, very, very effective technique uh, and system. But it's not very complex. And if any one of those components gets thwarted, you know, a blue belt's going to have to stop and think and kind of uh, stutter around and try to figure out what to do next, whereas a purple belt, brown belt, black belt is likely going to, as they're feeling the defense enter into place, they're going to operate off of option two, uh, option three. Uh, and you know, I think that's what we're doing uh, in jiu-jitsu as we mature is we're looking to increase the complexity of our attacks, not in the sense of complex techniques, but in the sense of being able to link effective techniques together in more ways so that we get ahead of our opponent and submit them. What's the difference between that and, and somebody uh, being at such a high level to where uh, the first technique uh, or the first pathway down these the rotor techniques works pretty much every time? You know, it, I, Somebody I, I know is going to armbar me or leg drag me, they're not going to have to go to plan B or C. It's just going to work that first time. Is are they just addressing these things that I'm defending uh, at an earlier level and, and, and able to progress uh, that way, or what's going on there? Well, you know, the the, the person that I think of is, uh, you know, Hodger Gracie and his Mount Cross choke. You know, it's it's legendary at this point that, you know, I forget what world championship it was, but basically he did the exact same thing to everybody through the division uh, and just mounted cross choked everybody and uh, you know I remember sitting back thinking why didn't they why didn't they defend it how did they do it and you know there's just so uh, I think the there's a certain degree of proficiency with any of the fundamental techniques that you can get that as long as you get the technique started before the defense can get put into place you know, it, it's going to be difficult to defend, especially if the person has a certain type of attributes. Um, take, for example, the triangle choke. You know, the triangle choke is a very, very simple choke to defend if you can get even a small amount of defense started early in the process. And by defense, I mean posturing. Um, if you notice you're making the arm-in, arm-out mistake and you thrust your chest forward, lift your head high, you, you stand a very strong chance of surviving the triangle choke. But if, somebody can, if somebody's really savvy at 
at delivering the triangle, they've got such a control on your head and shoulder that by the time you realize you've made the arm in, arm out mistake, your head is is plastered to their belly and they're crossing their legs with ease around your neck and arm so that you're hung up. And the ability to get that proficient at that technique and to also understand how to make the entry such that uh, that the, the the amount of defense that can occur is is minimized. You know that takes a lot of practice and repetition. And uh, you know Ryan Hall, uh, who is somebody who I admire greatly in the jujitsu world, and and I've always I've been a fan of his uh, since he was Doctor Riangle triangling everybody in, in tournaments all over the country. Uh, when I I met with him and asked him uh, at one point in time. Uh, you know, what it took for him to get so good at triangles and why he chose triangle versus anything else. And, you know, at, at that point in his career, he said uh, that his goal was I needed to get, I knew I needed to get good and really good at every technique if I wanted to be a black belt. So I just chose to get really good at a technique that worked for me to a point where I was catching everybody with it. But I also fell behind in, in getting good at some other techniques, and so I had to play catch-up. But his point was um, he became he knew he needed to be razor-sharp at all of jiu-jitsu, so why not get razor-sharp at this technique first? And he, and he did. He just trained it to the point where, you know, at a purple belt level, he was, he was triangling browns and black belts, seasoned black belts in, you know, like Nagas and... Um, Grappler's Quest and uh, lots of videos out there of him doing that and, um, you know, with ease. And it was just because he knew the entries. He had drilled the entries to the point where he was entering into it before you even knew you needed to defend it. And that is a technique that if you don't get your defense started early, you're going to suffer. Uh, If you get the defense started early, you know, get your chest forward, head up, you know, uh, and so they can't cross that their legs in a figure four. You, you're going to survive. But if you're if you start in a triangle, you start defending a triangle where you've made the arm in arm out mistake. The person has the legs figure forward, and maybe even they have their hands on the back of your head and they're pulling down. And now you have to start to defend. It's very difficult to defend. Um, so you know, different moves have different. Uh, openings, you know. I always, I always say, there's no such thing as a perfect move in jujitsu. There's a way into and out of every technique. Um, that's true up to a given point, uh, and then there's the there's the point at which you just you're going to have to tap. All right, well, Tim, thank you so much for sh- sharing some insight on uh, uh, what it takes to be a blue belt and some uh, thoughts on that. I really appreciate you having me on your show. I, I love your show, and uh, uh, I'm always glad uh, to come on and help out. That was Tim Sled. Up next is Matt Thornton. All right, Matt, do you have any requirements for a blue belt? And if so, what are they? Absolutely, yeah. Um, when I first started teaching jujitsu about 25 years ago, it was it was a, something to think about when I was watching my coach Chris Howder give out belts and you know how I wanted to evaluate people. And I realized pretty quickly that it's impossible, I think, and. Uh, impractical and unproductive to try and divide jujitsu up based by in techniques. So I don't know if you remember, but some of the old books that came out from some of the Brazilian black belts back in the day had them, had the techniques divided by belt color and you could, you could thumb to the part of the book that had a particular belt color. 
And I always found that ridiculous because some of them, uh, some of the movements that, that they would show in the black belt portion would be things I'd show a white belt and some of the movements in, in the blue belt portion I would I would see as things that weren't that fundamental. So um, anybody that's familiar with SBG methodology knows our focus is fundamentals, which we define as what's most important, not what, what's most basic. The foundation of movement and making sure everybody can do those things properly so they have freedom of exp- as much freedom of expression as possible. So when I'm teaching a room full of black belts or I'm teaching a room full of white belts, my lesson plan doesn't usually change. So having said all that, the only way to evaluate blue belts is based on performance. And at my own academy now, since I've been here in Portland for you know, over 20 years, there's a large group of blue belts. And so it's very easy when someone's coming up through the ranks and they're able to roll technically uh, back and forth and give game to the other blue belts, then they know they're approaching that level. You know, their students know they're at that level. The coaches know they're at that level. It's not something we have to guess at. And we do an Ironman, and they're promoted. And the Ironman is more of a, a ritual. It's not a test. It only becomes tricky when I'm occasionally visiting some of our affiliate locations. We have over 50. Um, actually, it's more than that now, but at least over 50. And I don't necessarily know those students as well. So when I go there... What I will do sometimes is just put all the white belts through a series of positions. So five minutes mount top, five minutes mount bottom, five minutes cross sides top, five minutes cross sides, et cetera, through all the different positions. And what I'm looking for is their reactions. Are they responding with fundamental techniques that are appropriate or are they trying to muscle their way out? Or is it obvious that there's certain positions that they're unfamiliar with? And that's how I do it. But there's no... You know, there's no amount of techniques they have to show me correctly. There's no written test. I don't have them demonstrate anything. It's all done alive, either against resisting opponents on the mat throughout the years as they're coming up or in a, in a test like the evaluation like I just described. For that method of test where you don't know the student quite so well, are you relying quite a bit on the coach that does know the student? I rely a lot on the coach, but it's also, to be honest with you, for blue belts, it's not that difficult. So, you know, I put them in inside the closed guard and see how their base and posture is. I put them on closed guard bottom and see how their fundamentals are. Open guard passing, open guard holding, cross sides top and bottom, you know, back control, all the different positions. And you know you can look at someone and see them responding against somebody who's fully resisting against them in those positions. And, and I can know whether or not, they, they actually have ingrained the fundamentals that I want to have ingrained in them at that level. It's pretty, to be honest, it's a, it's a fairly easy way to test for blue belts. It's, it's, uh, it can be tiring if they're not used to that because doing positional sparring for what we call drilling, what most people call positional sparring for hours, sometimes an hour and a half uh, can be tiring, but that's a good test in and of itself because the best measure of your jujitsu is what's left when you're exhausted anyway. And uh, it's the same test, same um, standard for all the belts. The only difference would be the level of their training partner. So if I'm looking at somebody for a brown belt and that's not somebody I know really well, then I'm going to take somebody who I know is a solid brown belt or black belt and I'm going to put them on the other end of those positions and I'm going to make them drill all those positions while I I watch. And, And that's kind of the measure that we use. Matt, how important is it for a student to be able to defend their belt? Well, you you know, you can be a black belt and still get tapped by a blue belt. <laughs> Sometimes uh, you make a mistake and or 
other students can have particular movements, uh, even if they're a lower belt, that they're really good at. So you can have somebody who has an overall game as a blue belt, but has a black belt armbar from guard bottom, as an example. And if you get lazy or make a mistake, they'll catch you in that armbar. So you know, one win or one loss doesn't uh, make a belt. When I when I give out my I, I can get, I can answer a lot of questions in one in one by describing what I do with my brown belt. So when I have one of my brown belts who I'm close to giving a black belt to, prior to giving them a black belt, I always have a personal conversation with them and I ask them about belts and I ask them how would you give out belts? How would you evaluate people? Because one of the mistakes I think instructors make in this art is they assume that because you can do it well, you can teach. Uh, those are separate skills. If you can do it well and you can teach, then therefore you must be able to tell what belt someone else is. That's also a separate skill. And sometimes people don't know. So they'll evaluate people based on how long they've been a particular belt. We don't do that at SPG at all. You can be a blue belt for 20 years or uh, a year, depending on you know how well you go up. Or they'll do it based on one performance. And the worst way to evaluate people is how well they do it against you. That's a big ego trip that a lot of black belts get into. You know, this purple belt or caught me with a triangle he must be a black belt because there's no way i'd get i'd get promoted by i'd get uh, submitted by a purple belt then all of a sudden they throw the guy a brown belt uh and that's just a big ego trip and that's a mistake too so the only real measure of someone's performance and, uh, and what belt they are is how well they do consistently against their peers who are are that belt right that's that's the only way to really do it honestly and and really tell and when you have a group that's trained together for a long time and there's various belts in the room, then it's fairly easy to know if somebody is that belt or not, because they're, you see them perform over weeks and months and it's no problem. So the trick there is when you're a young coach and you don't have that many people on the mat is making sure that first crop of blue belts and that first crop of purple belts and brown belts are really solid because those are going to be the people that everybody else uses as yardsticks as they're coming up through the ranks. That's going to be what they measure against. And so I always, I always uh, caution my younger black belts that their first crop of belts that they give out, they should really, I'd rather see them wait too long than give it too early um, because that's going to be the measuring stick from that point forward for everybody else. That's interesting, especially with the, the first crop of them set in the standard for that location. Right. Really important. Matt, do you factor in intangibles like – uh, is the person a good teammate or do they have a positive attitude? Do they help others in the gym uh, when making a decision to give somebody a blue belt? Well, if they're, if they're not, if they don't have a positive attitude, they're not helping other people in the gym. We usually get rid of them anyway. <laughs> so it's not really a matter of the belt. It's like, we, we don't want them in the club. So, you know, the biggest mistakes I've made over the years, I've made a million mistakes over the years. And since I started teaching quite a while ago, you know, there wasn't that many of us around and, and it was kind of new and, and uh, we were learning as we went. And I'd be the first to tell you, I made a thousand mistakes. But my biggest mistakes, the ones that I regret the most, revolve around people that I kept around too long in the gym that I should have got rid of. Because um, by the time word gets to me that they're rough or I start to realize, man, this person's just, you know, is, is just too much of a dick to be on the mat. They've already you know, hurt or, or offended dozens and dozens of people. And, and those people will only come and tell you after they're gone. And that's, that's a lesson I learned many times. Um, and you want to keep people around cause we always, you know, I, I have hold out a lot of hope that jujitsu as a vehicle for, 
for self-improvement is very powerful. And we always hope that sometimes people will come around and change. They usually don't. And so now we're pretty ruthless about getting rid of people if they're, if they're demonstrating any kind of poor attitude at all. We just don't want them at the gym. I'm really very protective of that environment. I feel that that's my number one job as a head instructor is to protect that environment. So I don't think they'd ever make it to Blue Belt to my academy or to where we'd even be considering them for Blue Belt to my academy if they had a bad attitude. Matt, you've mentioned that you've made mistakes. Have you ever given out a Blue Belt and regretted it? No. I, I only can think of one belt I've ever given out that I, I regret. And even then, it didn't it didn't really matter that much because it's something that they grew into. Um, and it was one of my very early higher belts that I just, you know, caved to a little bit of pressure uh, based on my relationship with that person. But that's the only time. Every every time after that, every single belt I've given, all I've given out, I think, uh, I have 15 about black belts. They're all you know, rock solid and, uh, and, uh, and the lower belts. I don't think I've ever given out one. I regret it. No. And, and when I'm, especially when I, I should add to, if I'm in Ireland or the UK or one of the other clubs and I don't know the people there and I, and I, I am doing the belt evaluations that I mentioned, if I see one major mistake. So for example, if they're caught in head and arm and they don't know how to escape a headlock properly and, or they're mount bottom and they're just trying to bench press people off, I'll put a check mark by their name, and no matter what else they do good that day, they're not getting their belt. So I'm pretty ruthless about handing out belts. If someone gets a blue belt from me, no matter where I am in the world, uh, it was they can rest assured that they should be able to go to any tournament and defend that belt in their age group and uh, an appropriate uh, weight category because uh, it, uh, it's a responsibility I do take pretty seriously. Do you think with your system of uh, evaluating belts is harder? Is it focused more on, on defense and what they're doing? Because they're sparring with their peers that are closely matched. It's oftentimes hard to show your offensive tools to somebody who's a similar skill with you. Yeah, no, it's not. I wouldn't necessarily – that's a good point. I wouldn't necessarily categorize them, though, as, as defense as opposed to offense as I would positional as opposed to a submission. So what, what I'm really looking for is their mastery and control over positions, and that includes escaping positions, and that includes holding positions. And and for us at the academy, like I said, everything in SPG is about fundamentals. And as you know, the core of fundamentals in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu uh, rests on the premise of position before submission. Uh, and the, the thing that I've always found the least important and the least interesting about Jiu-Jitsu is submissions. So our focus is always on positions and I've always found the best jiu-jitsu to be what most schools think of as white belt jiu-jitsu when we're talking about technical stand-ups and uh, upas from mount and the appropriate way to apply weight when you're across the top I was just watching a video the other day of Hiran training some police officers and one of our other black belts posted and you can see him tapping those guys out with just cross-side pressure from top that's that's white belt jiu-jitsu that's that's nothing fancy but to me, that's the most important part of the art. So um, when I'm looking at people, I'm not evaluating how good they can submit somebody, how fast they can submit somebody. I'm looking at how well they can control positions, including their ability to defend them and escape them and hold them, because that's going to be the foundation that allows them to grow a solid game as they move up through the ranks. Do you have any advice for the new Blue Belt? You know, I get asked that. That's probably my number one question I get asked when I do my seminars every year. And, and I, um, 
I, I appreciate that, but people are always interested, you know, what do I need to do? Or as it's usually phrased, what, what's the best advice for white belts to get the blue belt? My answer is usually the same. It depends obviously on who I'm talking to, but the most often given answer is relax. Uh, that was the advice that was given to me when I first saw Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and took my first lesson, however many decades ago that was with Fabio Santos. He told me that. Hickson told me that. Uh, Chris Howder told me that over and over again. The years, um, you know, he trained me through my all my belts, and uh, that's what I tell the students. The sooner they relax uh, physically, then the quicker they're able to feel that connection to their opponent, as Hickson would say, and the the better their technical jujitsu will become. And I always try and remind the students when I'm doing the belt evaluations, I'm not there as a strength and conditioning coach. I'm not interested in how, how much they can bench or how powerful their squat is. I'm looking at their technical jujitsu. So they could be very strong and, you know, capable at the blue belt level of, you know, ripping somebody's head off or arms off their body. Uh, but if I see them responding in a way that's uh, technically poor, I'm going to fail them whether they win that match or not, because I know when they go down to the Pan Ams or they go down to the Worlds and they try and compete even at the blue belt level against the other athletes, once they get past the first couple matches, they're going to lose because everybody's strong and fast down there. You have to be strong and fast and have the appropriate technique. So my advice to the students is always relax, followed closely by uh, don't worry about what belt you are. You know, Chris used to have the old school rule was if you asked um, how close you are to the next belt, you automatically had to wait another year. I don't do that, but I do remind them that, you know, eventually they're all going to be black belts as long as they don't quit. And then you'll never get another belt, so don't worry about it. And then the last piece I would say to them, which is a technical piece, is I think it's really important, I always have um, since I've taught, to begin right away with open guard and to focus heavily on open guard, especially through white and blue belt, because there is so much hip movement involved in being able to play open guard. Uh, and hip movement is the number one skill, as we all know, in jujitsu. So if they focus too much on closed guard at the early belts, then sometimes they lack that hip movement and they're scared. You'll see them in the tournament. They'll be scared to open up their legs and go for anything. And so for strategically, for a lot of my students, I prefer they focus more on offensive closed guard later in the game, purple belt and beyond. It doesn't mean we don't work it. It just means that I try and get them to open up their guard as quick as possible and to attack as much as possible. Um, and that helps to get all that fluid hip movement and timing with the opponent, which is so important. And you want as many hours of that as possible. So you might as well start day one white belt. As a blue belt, is there a certain guard that you recommend uh, that they open guard that they start working with or just trying to try them all? Uh, we don't get too uh, defined that way usually. So they're going to be exposed to different guards. The coach might be teaching a daily heba guard or a spider guard and the different fundamentals of the grips and where you put your feet. But it, the way we teach open guard at SBG is more conceptual. So we'll talk about always having three points of contact, you know, two hands and one leg or two legs and one hand. And when you have three points of contact, that person's going to have a almost impossible time passing. They pass when they only, when you have two points of contact or less. So, those points of contact change. It could be your knee. It could be your foot. It could be butterfly hook. It could be a foot on the bicep. Your, your hands will take grips on the collar, grips on the sleeve, grips on the ankle, grips on the neck, grabbing the wrists. So those are all fluid. And then every single person on the mat is going to have a different open guard, even at blue belt. 
they're going to have a different open guard. So uh, as much as possible, we focus on the fundamentals and we focus on, on conceptual foundations of the position and we let the students pick um, what they want to play. And by pick, I don't mean like it's an all-you-can-eat Chinese buffet and they pick what dish they want. I mean their body picks, which guards work best for them over hours on the mat. And you're going to have some blue belts that have these butterfly hooks and other blue belts that play spider guard and other blue belts that like to play, you know, deep half or whatever it is. And that's important too, because what happens is you get a lot of diversity on that mat. And so everybody on the mat gets exposed to a lot of different games. And uh, I always know when I go to, if I go to a school to teach a seminar, that's not an SBG school. um, I, I always know that they're probably not, um, applying the best teaching methodology. When I look around the room and I see all the students playing the same kind of guard and trying to do the same kind of passes and executing the same kind of sweeps. And what that means usually is the instructor at that school teaches his game or her game. Uh, they teach it on technique by technique basis. You do X, they respond Y, you follow with Z. And uh, it's a terrible way to teach jujitsu because in a room full of a hundred people, you'll be lucky if you get two that are even similar after five or six years. And so um, we try not to do that. Instead, I said, this, these are the important concepts behind holding any kind of open guard. These concepts transcend the types of open guard. Here's what they are. Here's some drills so you can play it and develop those skills. Now go on the mat and develop your own guard. Figure out what works for you. Wow, that, that's great. And I could just visualize as a room uh, full of similar grapplers, you're not getting the same variety of experience on the mat as you would with a team that has you know 100 grapplers 100 different games and you're going to have answers for all of them and it helps you exactly compete with people you don't know exactly yeah you don't want them to run into a different kind of game the first time ever when they step on the mat into a tournament that rarely happens i mean it still happens of course but it rarely happens to our students just because uh there's such a wide variety of games in a typical spg academy all right. Well, thank you, Matt. I appreciate talking with you. Yeah, thanks, Matt. It was great talking to you again. I look forward to it. That was Matt Thornton. Up next is Bernardo Faria. Do you have any belt requirements for a blue belt? Man, at, at, at Alliance, Fabio Gurgel, he created a curriculum that uh, – at Alliance, not at Marcelo's, at Alliance. The, the, okay. Marcelo's part of Alliance, but Marcelo does his own things that I – I'm not saying that's right or wrong. I mean, like I and I agree with the, uh, most of the things Marcel does. I agree, and uh, he's a great teacher and super nice guy. So, but uh, at Alliance, Fabio has an Alliance curriculum, and Fabio does belt tests. But uh, and then there is a huge discussion here if it's fair or not to do belt tests. This and that. I see people saying yes or no, but whatever. But what I want to mean is. At five schools, for one person to go to the blue belt, it requires at least one average of 120 classes. So he has the control. And, for example, if one person did only 50 classes in two years, he's not ready to go to the blue belt. So I, I think it's... To follow this exactly as it is, it's not perfect, but to have some idea is good, you know, because you don't want to, maybe the guy trains jiu-jitsu for three years, but he did 20 classes. You don't want to give him the blue belt. 
And uh, so it's good to have some idea of like, uh, and uh, sometimes you have like a very packed school as well. And uh, you, you, you don't have the control of exactly who is very tough and who is not very tough and this and that. And you cannot, I think you cannot graduate somebody only because the guy's tough as well or because he's not tough. Some people are not tough, you know, they, 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 they are not tough and they will never be, you know, it's not their style. They, they are just, they are very technical, but they're not tough, you know, so, so I think it's good to have some idea of when you should graduate someone. For example, oh, this guy has around like 100, 130 class or so. Oh, he has a good jiu-jitsu. He know how to do those techniques. Yeah, he's ready to go. Maybe he's not like a super tough guy, but I mean, like he knows jiu-jitsu, and that, that, that's what you want. You know, we want our students knowing jiu-jitsu and doing the best they can. You know, doesn't matter what level they are. You know, we just want to make sure that they know jiu-jitsu. Jiu-jitsu is being good for them. They are learning. They are happy. I think that's the goal. How important is it for students to be able to defend their belt? Yeah, I tap for blue, purple, brown, black. <laughs> White, I don't think I tap. <laughs> but I can't tap. That can happen. Why not? You know. But uh, uh, I think this mentality, like, oh, I'm brown belt, I cannot tap for a blue belt. This is very old mentality. I think if you if you train really hard every day, you know, if you, if you one day I roll with Marcelo, I roll with Mateus, I roll with John, I roll with Munch, I roll with Marcus. Man, if I go with one blue belt in the last round, I might be in the deep problem. <laughs> so, I mean, like, I don't care for that, you know. Yeah. I think that's not the thing, you know. I mean, like, if if I think if you are worried too much about protecting your belt, you stop learning, you know, because you, you're going to stop you're going to start selecting if who you're going to roll because, oh, I don't want to roll with that guy because maybe he's going to tap me. That's not jiu-jitsu, you know. You are there to learn, to have fun. And uh, I think you are there exactly for that. You are there to learn and you are there to have fun. You don't need to worry if you are there to beat people or being beaten. You don't worry about that. Just worry about learning. And just worry about having fun. If you're going to protect your belt or not, who cares, you know. When it comes to... Promoting somebody to a blue belt, how important is it that they are like a good teammate? They try hard, they help others. Those kind of uh, things that aren't necessarily jujitsu related. How important is it that they have those? Yeah, this is very cool about Marcelo's school. Marcelo is very deep on that. Marcelo, like, uh, if the guy is a bad person, I think he's gonna take a very long time to get his belt because. <laughs> uh, Bad person, we mean like it's very rare that you find someone like that, you know. But very many times you see guys with like bad attitudes, this and that. Then, man, Marcel holds that guy down, you know. And it's, I think that's the most fair thing, you know, because man, when you give someone a higher belt, you are giving this guy power, you know. It's it's a type of power, you know. And you don't want to give your power, sorry to use this word here, guys, but to an asshole, you know. Yeah. So, uh, Marcel is very, very like a good guy, you know, and he want to be, a, he want to have everyone being like a good guy, being good examples as well, you know, and I think that's, that's the way it's, as it should be, you know, imagine like a new students coming to our school and then most of the students are like not nice persons, this and that, and they're all like higher belts and it's not cool. So I, I think the, the attitude should be very important when you consider graduating someone as well. When it comes to uh, giving a blue belt to somebody, have you ever regretted that? Have you ever regretted giving somebody a blue belt? 
no, we, we, at Marcel's there is no belt test, so we we get together like me, him, Paul, and the, the other instructors nowadays, and uh, we we take our decisions. You know, sometimes happens that all of us we are like, oh, I don't know what to do. Let me think. <laughs> that happens, you know. But uh, regret, I'm not gonna say, you know, because if you took the decision, you took the decision, you know, and. Yeah. Uh, do you have any advice for a new blue belt? For a new blue belt? Yeah. Uh, if I had to say something, it would be pretty much what you were saying here. Like, keep your ego low. Not only in the blue belt, on all belts. And try to learn as much as you can, having fun as much as you can, and train as much as you can. But don't worry if the white belt's going to tap you or, or, you know. I mean, like, of course, you should worry about if you're learning well or not. But don't worry if the the guy tapped you or not because that this is going to stop your learning process you know wow that that's great advice and it it's something that uh, i remember as a blue belt i was worried about you know getting caught in the you know, tight triangle by an, by a white belt or something oh i got to not tap to this but really i should be focused on learning and if maybe uh, some guard pass is ending up to where i get triangled sometimes i need to work on that and not just oh throw it away and and not and not work on that. I need to work on uh, with making myself better at jiu-jitsu, not getting, uh, avoiding yeah. getting tapped out by somebody. Well, I mean, like, for example, I'm black belt, right? So if every day I start getting tapped five times per day by blue and purple, <laughs> and white, I'm going to start getting worried. You know? Yeah. <laughs> but, but uh, you know, if it started too often and by guys much lower belts than you, Maybe you're doing something wrong, so I would get worried. But yeah. I would definitely not get worried if one blue belt tapped me tomorrow or today and that happens. Okay, no problem. Gonna still train anything and everybody. That was Bernardo Fria. Up next is Daniel Koval. Uh, first off, Dan, do you have uh, any requirements when giving out a blue belt? And if you do, what are they? Yeah, I most certainly do. What I'm looking for out of someone that is eligible to receive a blue belt from me is some of the most basic techniques from jiu-jitsu but the things that are built going forward meaning it's, it's a solid foundation if you can't do the most basic things if we can't get a a uh takedown doesn't mean it doesn't need to be a specific takedown but i need to see someone that is competent from their feet at least able to do a takedown defend the takedown um i also need to see a development of a guard of some sort there needs to be some sort of guard uh retention ability a guard they're, they're looking to play always something that they're going to really be the foundation of their game going forward the same thing that comes to passing and more than anything else <clears throat> when it comes to being on the uh, the mat is i want to be able to see the person competently defending themselves when it comes to grip fighting head positioning what they're doing with their hips are they are they really looking to escape um using a hip escape you know are they laying flat are they looking for underhooks are they looking to make their situation better through the simplest most basic things that we've discussed thus far uh, a couple things kind of call my attention uh you're wanting to see some takedowns or, or maybe not some but to see a uh, a method to get the fight to the ground uh, and also a sprawl i think you mentioned but uh, so you Correct. really somebody who 100 percent of the time pulls guard and really doesn't have a takedown you want to see them do something as far as they done and the same thing from the the 
the person who may be already good at taking people down, you want to see them have some kind of a guard developed. Is is that correct? What I'm feeling there um, is that yeah, often correct. a problem for somebody that uh, you know they're, they're a pretty good white belt. They're starting to get up there and really roll pretty good with the blues, but they have uh, really limited themselves sometimes in in their de- development. Do they need to kind of step outside that box to kind of well, at least I got to get a takedown that I'm that I feel good about. Yeah, I, I think I think sometimes uh, it's um, really uh, th- there's a sense of trepidation that comes over a lot of people when it comes to takedowns, uh, especially if there's no background, uh, judo background, wrestling background coming from the specific athlete. It, you know, that's it's something that people always because it's it's kind of whispered in the jujitsu community, like, oh, that's how you get hurt. That's that's where you're going to get hurt most likely. Um, that's why from from the instant someone steps on the mat any one of my programs, we start to show them and we start to develop some sort of stand-up game. Uh, we don't expect anyone to be an Olympic-level wrestler or a judo player, but we expect people to understand that every fight, tournament, self-defense situation is most likely going to start from their feet. So you have to be comfortable, if not confident, right from the beginning. We, we can't allow that to be a weak point. We can't allow that to be something that people shy away from. So we immediately throw people into that. So there is no like, oh, hey, uh, I never got a chance to work on this. No, it's it's part of our warm-up. It's part of our curriculum. It's, it's part of combat sports from our viewpoint. Uh, while you're looking for these things uh... – is this like an actual test you're giving where they're demonstrating with either a live opponent or a cooperative opponent, or are you just noticing this when they're on the mat training or are they, are you matching people up and, and, and watching them roll specifically for this test? What, how is this done? I watch the students train on a daily basis. <clears throat> I think, uh, I think a test set aside to have someone do um, rote memorization, like a standardized test in, in school, uh, I think it defeats the purpose. And I also think it's really lazy, to be honest with you. Um, I think, you know, not to say it's a bad thing completely, and I especially understand people with overwhelming numbers of students that, that you know, they have to take that route and, and kind of test people accordingly. But I think it's better for the students, better for the instructors, better for their teammates to observe people and really invest in their development by watching them taking stock and how they're doing, how are they going against X, Y, Z, someone that is comparable mat time, size, you know, physical attributes, everything accordingly. You take that into account while you're watching their development. And as it's going, you should really be making notes of this as the instructor, as the coach, like there's, these are the things that people are paying you for. These are the things that people are coming to you for. So you should be taking inventory of this person's skill set. And that's how I go about it. It's a daily evaluation. I'm expecting to see something. You know, you hear the thing, the 1% better. I don't anticipate anyone getting 1% better every single day. I'll take point zero 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 whatever, 1% at that point. You know what I mean? Like we're talking marginal improvements. And, and I'm trying to give the athlete as much feedback as possible. And a lot of times, especially early on, and early on I mean for the first, you know, like four or five years, 
a lot of it just comes down to being, you know, mindful of your head position, grip fighting, underhooks, where your hips are in relationship to the other person's hips. These are the things that really make or break most situations and what everything else is built off of. So you have to do it on a daily basis. It's just like anything else. It's if you expect to get better, you kind of have to cultivate that and it has to be done daily. It can't, I can't just kind of cut them loose and go, Hey, in three months, I'll take a look at you. No, I want to see it daily. And I want to see about the things that we've discussed daily. And I want to see just a little bit of improvement daily. That's, that's what we're looking for. Is it important for a student to be able to d- defend their belt? Yeah. Th- th- listen, especially training. D- there are so many things that go into that situation. People's work day, people's personal life, people's experience outside of the gym, what time they're coming in. What You know, listen, I want to see a person, everything being equal, go up against their peer and be able to do well. But if they get caught with somebody that is, quote unquote, technically inferior to them because of their belt color, I don't stand there and go, I can't believe it, or I'm going to hold it against you as when the promotions are coming up. It will happen, and it's okay. It's practice. We're here to get better. Do I expect the person to to learn from the mistake and build off of it and, and then come back? whether even be within that round during training or the the following day and learn from that and, and put that lesson forward. Yeah, of course. But is it, is it the worst thing in the world? No. And am I going to, is it going to be like a, uh, a mark on their permanent file? No, but if it's a, if it becomes habitual and we discuss it and try to go over it and correct it and then they, they don't make adjustments accordingly going forward, that might be something that becomes an issue, but normally when you're talking about that, if someone's getting caught by a lower belt on a, on a consistent basis, something's probably off. Something's probably off and, and, and you're more likely going to be able to correct it than not if you're, if you're paying attention. So it's not the end of the world. And no, it's, it's not the biggest of deals, especially, especially during practice. Yeah. I think one of the, the words you said there was on a consistent basis, uh, things happen, you know, we're rolling and, and you're getting a lot of time in on the mat with people and uh, you, you put somebody two belt uh, ranks lower than you on your back and you're still in trouble, uh, put, put them there long mm-hmm. enough and you'll get caught eventually. Uh, but is sure. it consistently uh, somebody getting tapped out by somebody who is uh, ranked lower than them? Uh, probably unlikely. And if so, a little fine tuning probably should help that out quite a bit. Yeah, I completely agree. Uh, Daniel, when making a uh, belt promotion consideration, do you take into effect intangible things like, is this person a good teammate? Do, is their attitude good? Do they help others? Uh, do those things come into play when promoting a blue belt? Yeah, yeah um, uh, they do. They do, but I wouldn't say I weigh them as heavily as maybe some other people do. Uh, I always make reference to this when, when I'm discussing things with my my students. It, it, listen, you're here to train. Everyone's going to be friendly. We're very fortunate, especially being considering the fact that we're in the uh, New York City, New York City metro area. You know, we, we uh, people in this area kind of get a, a rap about being a little, you know, standoffish, gruff, you know, whatever. Uh, everyone's very friendly, outgoing. We're very fortunate. But do I expect everyone to be best friends? No. Do, do I expect everyone to uh, high-five each other afterwards like a Mentos commercial? 
absolutely not. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I want to see I want to see some sort of like you know team bonding and someone willing to do something for somebody else because then that person should be able to do that for that person when they need help, whether it be getting ready for an event or, you know, just a physical fitness thing. So I tell everybody, we're here for exercise more than anything else and to learn how to defend ourselves. And then thirdly, you know, competition and so on and so forth. You have to be willing to be a good component to this overall team. And and that goes into judging someone. Do, Do you want people around long term anywhere that are going to be a problematic be you know dramatic in general and see someone that is going to chase off other people no you don't want that and you definitely don't want them as a representation of you um i i, I don't i don't look at my students and go you guys have to emulate me in every single form and fashion uh my honor's at stake i don't no, that's i don't do that but i but I expect someone to be a good teammate and that's a wide generalization and people can view that differently. But I think when you say good teammate, you can basically equate that to good person. And I almost assume everyone as an adult kind of has a rough idea of what that looks like polite. And that's about it. No one needs to be everyone's best friend, polite and, and help each other and try not to break each other on the mat. And we're good to go. There we go. It's it. Uh, different people have different personality traits for sure. Definitely looking for some things, but uh, realistic view of it. And we're not all uh, going over to uh, everyone's house and, and, and having different dinners and all that stuff. Sometimes that happens, and people definitely make those friendships. But to think that everybody mm-hmm. is going to have that same relationship with everybody else is a bit unrealistic. It's part of having Correct. a uh, that diverse group that we that we enjoy on the mats. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Dan, uh, thinking back to all the the blue belts you promoted, do you ever regret giving somebody a blue belt? No, I, I would never regret giving someone a blue belt because I look at things just like life. At whatever time period that is in life, um, that person earned it, and that's the other reason that I'm not big on t- testing. You know, testing like it's not it, combat sports, jujitsu in particular, is something that when it comes to promotions, you earn. You earn through time in the mat and the other things that we discussed in terms of the intangibles and being a good, you know, just teammate. And those things are at that moment, what make you eligible for that promotion. Now later down the line, if something happens or whatever, that's, that's besides the point. But when that person is ready for something that they earned, and again, this, that's what we're here for, that everyone enjoys the fact and that's what separates jiu-jitsu from most other martial arts is the fact that you're earning it. You're earning it. There is no one, there is, there shouldn't be at least, just giving things to people because of time or whatever, you know, whatever other, whatever other measurable. It, it's earned through your effort. It's earned through learning it's earned through your technical prowess it's becoming someone that you can put that belt on and say yeah i I, they're they're representing what i believe to be proper ranked at this point and you know there's never i've never had an issue and again 
fortunate enough to never look back and go, I can't believe I gave that person X, Y, Z belt. Never. Dan, do you have any advice for the new blue belt? Yeah, of course. This is, this is the beginning of the beginning. When you get a blue belt, you should look at it as like, wow, now I, I've, I've been around enough. I've committed myself. I've become consistent enough in this activity. And I'm invested enough in this activity that, that I've been rewarded with the first step of many steps of which hopefully will be a lifelong pursuit because if this isn't something that is lifelong pursuit, like what are, what are we doing? Because everyone always discusses, you know, jujitsu in this, in this form that it's like, oh, it should be something that is lifelong. And, and life happens to a lot of people and it, it changes the dynamic and what their goals are and, and so on. I really do feel that jujitsu is, can fit to, it can fit into anyone's lifestyle, whatever whatever it is, whatever walk of life you're from. As you receive a blue belt, you should go, ah, this is this is something that I've achieved that I've achieved through hard work, through being consistent, through all of the things that you've heard about in your life that makes a successful person. That's what makes a blue belt: determination, hard work, those type of things, discipline, hungry. You know, all of those are like a Rocky montage, more or less. You know, those are the things that you can take away once you get promoted to blue belt jiu-jitsu. And that's, you know, and you hear a lot of uh, program owners, gym owners, coaches talk about like, oh, we, there's a lot of loss in terms of student body around the blue belt area because, you know, life happens like we've already discussed. But I, I think... The problem with getting the blue belt is is that the time period is more or less a year to two years, and then someone's like, you know, the next step can can vary widely. The purple belt, it's a huge variation, and I don't think it's the the time from blue to purple that makes it such a like, oh, the person was sick of waiting or whatever. I think that life just happens sometimes, but I think the person that really values receiving a blue belt will will take those under you know those values that came along with achieving it and hopefully continue to push that forward in the pursuit of this martial arts path that they that they've taken on it's something committed to now it's intrinsic in their lifestyle they can't live without it exercise their therapy it's their fill in the cliche blank that everyone uses when they talk about jujitsu, uh, but it's true. These the, jujitsu fills a big void for a lot of people and getting your blue belt should let you know that you are more than competent and you are more than capable of achieving anything you want, especially within the, the guidelines of the sport. But, but even outside that construct of just jujitsu, it's like, wow, I've applied myself and, and someone who you know, I would, I would imagine they, they look up to their coach and, in some way has found it found me in my effort good enough to promote me and that's hopefully what they take away from it and that's that's a life lesson that can be applied going forward in any direction all right well thank you very much for answering these questions and i think they will be uh, a lot of help for people uh, going forward as they get their blue belts as they get close or as they uh, really settle into that level that they're at great it was my pleasure that was Daniel Koval. Up next is Henry Akins. 
do you have any requirements for a blue belt? And if so, what are they? So I have some very, very uh, general requirements. Um, and, you know, for me, for my own personal students, some of it is based on performance and obviously uh, knowledge. But, you know, I, I feel that by the time someone gets a blue belt, they have um, a basic understanding, a general understanding of uh, a few takedowns. So they're comfortable on their feet. They're comfortable being able to take the fight to the ground. And they have a basic understanding of all of the, the main positions in jiu-jitsu. So the mount position, they're comfortable maintaining mount. They're comfortable escaping the mount. They're comfortable maintaining cross-side. They're comfortable escaping cross-side, uh, half guard, you know, and the back. So that's kind of... For me, I guess the, the blue belt is kind of the first step, you know, into the journey of, of, you know, all your other belts. And so I feel what the most important thing in in getting to the blue belt is, is just having the basic understanding of the positions and maybe, you know, a handful of submissions, a handful of maybe basic submissions that they can go to from each position. So it's it's not super specific for me. It's it's a little bit more generalized. But, yeah, that's my uh, my my kind of requirement for my students is I, I feel that they are good on their feet. They have a few takedowns and that, you know, they have a basic understanding of how to maintain dominant positions and how to escape bad positions. How important is it for a student to be able to defend their belt? That's a little, that's a kind of a tough question. I mean, for me, I don't feel it's that important. I mean, because, and here's the reason is because we all make mistakes. And when you're doing jujitsu, you know, especially at that level, um, if you make a mistake, you can get caught. So I think in general, yes, they should, uh, a blue belt should outperform white belts, you know, but then there's several other things to take into consideration. You have, you know, um, if you have a 50 year old guy, a 55 year old guy, that's, you know, uh, a dad, he gets to train twice a week and he's, uh, maybe a doctor or something like that there's going to be different standards for him and different expectations for him. Then you have a 22 year old kid. That's an NCAA uh, wrestling champion, you know? Um, so I, I do believe that there's different standards involved when you're, when you're, you know, talking about different students. So, yeah, I mean, obviously I, you know, I think that they should gen in general outperform, but I don't think it's, it's a must. Like I think, I don't think that, Oh gosh, he got topped out by a well, but he's not a blue belt. Does that make sense? Yeah. Uh, things happen on the mat and some of the white belts are not the same as other white belts. And, uh, it, there's also that training aspect that you might be more tired than them and you might be pushing yourself uh, training with yeah, there's upper so belts many too. there's so many different factors you know into getting caught. I mean, and you see this all the time too. There's certain guys that specialize in specific techniques. Some guys like you know this is really common where they have like an amazing triangle guy that's really tall and lanky. He develops how to use the triangle and how to set up the triangle. That's his kind of go-to move. And he's a white belt and he catches a lot of guys. He can catch a lot of guys you know more advanced belts in his move. Um, you know, in other positions, he's not as strong, he's as weak, but he's got, he's really dangerous from one position. So, you know, it, he doesn't have a well-rounded game, but that, that, that can also be a possibility. So there, he's a little bit better in one position. So maybe he is a blue belt in that position, but in every other position, he's a white belt. Does that make sense? Yeah. Looking at the overall game. Right. 
for the for the student themselves, uh, should they uh, feel something off when they do get caught by a lower belt, or is that just part of the training process? Yes, I, I think it's a great thing to be upset and discouraged, and because that's what really drives us to get better. You know, people think of it as something negative, like to be upset or discouraged or, or um, frustrated, but it's those feelings and the, those emotions that push us to achieve more and to get better. If we were content, you know, with okay, the guy got tapped, and I, that's I'm cool with that, I'm fine. It it doesn't it doesn't motivate you as much. So um, definitely, I think those those feelings and those uh, emotions that you experience, um, those are, that's what drives people to to achieve more. Do you think that that could uh, possibly play in the opposite way, where uh, if I'm a blue belt, I'm kind of tired. I know this white belt's a handful. I'll just roll with somebody else and avoid him, or or should should you just go ahead and, and grab that person and roll with them anyway? You know, it's always, it's always, I always tell my students the best time to train is when you're tired. You know, that way you're not using your physicality. So uh, obviously each, for each individual, you know, what goes through their head in that moment will be different. Certain people uh, prefer to challenge themselves. And so obviously it's, you know, as an instructor, I would always suggest to my students, yes, train when you're tired, even if the guy's fresh, even if he's extremely physical, learn how to defend yourself when you're tired against someone that's fresh and physical, because that's, that could be a possibility in a real situation, you know? Um, but yeah, what actually goes through the individual's head during that time, you know, sure. A a lot of people will, will back down to that challenge, you know, but yeah, of course it's always, it's always important to challenge yourself. And you know, if you mess up, who cares? Big deal. It's, it's a, it's an opportunity for you to learn something. You know, that's every time you tap, every time you lose, every time, you know, what people consider losing, it's just basically opportunities to learn. You know, it's only a failure if you don't gain anything from it. Do the intangibles, like uh, somebody being a good teammate, having a good attitude, somebody who's helping others on the mat, does that come into play when you're promoting somebody to a blue belt? You know, not so much to a blue belt, because a, a blue belt is, is a very, very a kind of beginner. Um, from from white to blue, I think people are just really starting to understand the martial arts, or jiu-jitsu specifically. You know, it's kind of the beginner phase. Um, I, as a, a teacher, as an instructor, I always encourage, I think the instructor always sets the example for the students. So how you treat other people, that's how your students are going to learn to treat other people on the mats too. So I think a lot of that falls into. Um, the other thing too is, you know, as an instructor, we've had to weed people out from the gym that I felt were not good teammates that did not have good intentions. We're not. So that happens a lot too. Um, and obviously that's, that's a little bit more extreme cases, but for me, you know, almost all of my students are, are, are good people, good human beings. If, if there's, if there's a person that I feel is destructive to the team environment, it is, it has nothing to do with promoting them if if that's how I feel, then you know after a conversation or two, then they're out of the gym. You know, it's it's not a it's not even a question of whether they're getting promoted or not promoted. It's just whether they're good the, if they're a good fit for the team, or whether they're not a good fit for the team. And if they're not, um, then you know they're asked to leave because. I, and we've had that experience before. One person can kind of ruin the whole environment. Can really ruin the whole uh, vibe. 
Yeah, it sounds like you, instead of worrying about promoting somebody as a blue belt and see if they are the, have the character that you're looking for, uh, that's taken care of long before that it's to that point. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like, you know, by that point, you know, I'm not going to keep someone on the team long enough for them to, okay, I'm going to promote them to blue belt, but they're, they're not a good training partner there. You know, that's the thing is, you know, everyone there's there to learn and have fun. And so if you have one person there that's super aggro, super aggressive, trying to hurt people, you know, his training partners, you know, that creates a really, really negative environment. You know, it's completely against kind of my beliefs, which is jujitsu. You know, we all come to jujitsu to, to get a good workout, to learn how to protect ourselves and to have fun. And so, um, yeah, those people get weeded out long before. So it sounds like with that type of individual, you kind of uh, pull them aside, talk to them, you know, hey, this is not really what we're about, and, and give them a chance to, to understand uh, what we're doing here. And then, uh, you know, hopefully they uh, change what they're doing. And if not, they need to, to find a different location to train in that way. Right. And yeah, you, and usually it's one or two conversations, you know, you, you'll find out that something's going on or there, you know, or you'll, when you, you'll watch them, sometimes some student will bring up, Hey, I was training with this guy and he, you know, put his knuckles into my jaw or he started, you know, driving his elbow in and I'll have to mention something like, Hey, that's not cool. You know, or guys are going really hard. And that, that's the thing is, you know, you, you have to really see what the person's intentions are because sometimes it's not intentional. You know, sometimes, and a lot of people, this is the case, you know, they first start training, there's a lot of panic and fear within them. And they feel that they have to go strong and or, or use, be really explosive or be really physical in order to survive. And so that's part of, you know, part of the thing for being an instructor is to really help guide the students. Like, hey, it's not necessary for you to, you know, be so tense, to be so explosive, to try to go crazy, to try to survive. It works against you in the long run. You know, it slows down your learning. It, you know, it creates an environment for injury. So, um, yeah, you know, there are certain drills that I do where I have people go 100%, but those are very, very specific drills, and they're positional drills, you know, where basically people are told to go 100%, and it's very, very specific because I, I also want to create an environment where my students learn to deal with someone that is spazzing because that's exactly what's going to happen on the street. But those are very, very controlled positional trainings. You know, where I say, okay, so you're going to go 100%. You're not going to use any jiu-jitsu. You're just going to try to freak out, you know. Um, so, yeah, but the main thing is is creating an environment where it's safe for everyone to train. Henry, thinking back to the, the many blue belts you've given over the years, do you ever regret giving somebody a blue belt? No, you know, and and we actually, it's, it's funny that you asked this question because we just did a, a belt promotion uh, right before Christmas. And um, I was having a talk to some of um, the other coaches and uh, trainers, and we were talking about, you know, who we felt were ready to be promoted and stuff like that. And there's certain people that you know when the belt promotion comes, they're ready for the belt. They're, they've surpassed the belt. Like, yes, this guy should definitely be a, a blue belt. And there's other people that what happens when you give them the belt, when they're presented with the belt, they actually grow into it. It gives them the confidence. It builds them, you know, and they feel... Uh, so it, it's really different with each individual. That's the crazy thing with human nature is we're, we're so such different in how we 
operate and how we deal with different experiences in life. Um, some people are extremely motivated, driven. They don't need a belt to feel better. They don't need a belt, you know. Um, other people, they need more encouragement. And a lot of times by, you know, uh, giving them a belt, and I don't give away belts easy by any means, but, you know, it's people that have put in the time and they put in the dedication and they've put in the effort and, you know, you see they've struggled a lot, but they're not quite there yet. A lot of times when you give them the belt, they, they rise to the occasion. And that happens a lot, you see, with competitors, too. There's certain guys that are competing, and when they train in the gym, they don't do well. But all of a sudden, when uh, it comes time for competition or for a, a tournament and there's pressures on, they do extremely well, you know. And so I think sometimes you give someone a belt, and they feel like, oh, geez, I, okay, now I'm a blue belt. I can't uh, let these white belts tap me out, you know. And they perform so much better. That's, that's interesting. Uh, I uh, Thinking back in my days of a blue belt, I was always under a little bit of stress. I didn't want to disappoint my coach. And it sounds like that's really not an issue uh, with you as far as your blue belts. You, you give them the blue belt and, and you uh, probably have some expectations of what they're doing. But, uh, you know, they, they either rise up to that occasion or they're already uh, there. But you don't look at them like, oh, man, that guy. He's really letting me down. It sounds more like uh, that you're always uh, seem to be pretty happy with him. Yeah, for the most part, you know. I mean, you know, I, I don't put too much. The, the The idea is not to, to put too much stress on the students or expectation because it's a constant learning. You know, it's. Uh, I mean, in jujitsu, you're constantly learning, constantly growing, constantly improving, constantly trying to get better. And you know, as you make mistakes which everybody does, no matter who you are, no matter how good you are, you know, hopefully you learn from it, you know, and if not, you're going to keep repeating the same mistakes until you do learn. So, yeah, I mean, for me and my, my, particularly my students, you know, I, obviously I, I want to push them to get better. I want to see them achieve um, the best that they can, you know, but I also, if they get tapped out or if they lose, you know, it's, it's not a big deal. It's part of the learning process. Do you have any advice for the new blue belt? My advice for the new blue belts is the same for any belt is um, to basically focus on the fundamentals. That's your foundation. And that is, you know, if you have strong foundation, strong fundamentals, it will carry you extremely far uh, in jujitsu. You know, um, I think I see a lot of schools now, uh, you know, white belts and blue belts trying to do very, very advanced techniques, advanced moves. I mean, the only reason that these guys are able to do those advanced things is because they have a very strong foundation already. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's, and I think that's the same in any sport or any, you know, any, uh, anything that people try to do, um, you know, initially is, is develop a strong base, develop a strong foundation, and then you can build from that. I think one of the the traps with uh, right on that blue belt age, you're kind of you're still a beginner, but you're kind of getting the hang of things, and you might pick up a a trick or a, a technique that's really uh, that you're really not able to handle 100, percent but it might work occasionally. So you really think this is the th the next best thing, and you end up really putting a lot of time and energy to something before actually working on uh, the more important uh, fundamentals, like you're talking about. Right. Exactly. Yeah, and a lot of times people feel that the fundamentals don't work at the higher level, 
because that's the first thing you learn is the first thing that people start to learn to defend. So they feel like, oh, this doesn't really work. But that's the thing. I, I really encourage people not to give up on those fundamentals because they work at the highest level. It's just like in basketball, say, for example. You know, you practice your layups. You practice your free throws. You practice, Those are the fundamentals. You practice how to dribble. And once you have that down, everything builds from that, you know. Um, you can't start doing stuff like what Kobe Bryant would do without, or Michael Jordan would do without those, without that foundation. Once you have that foundation, then you can start to, to dribble up and dunk and do all kinds of crazy shots and fadeaways and stuff like that. But, you know, develop the foundation first. Wow. Okay. Well, thank you very much uh, for hopping on here with me. And Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. That was Henry Aikens. Up next is John Will. Do you have any requirements for a blue belt? And if you do, what are they? Uh, yes, I do. Um, I, I I haven't got, just to put it in context, post blue belt, we're not so big on that. But I think blue belt so important because it represents the foundation. Uh, so there are you know requirements. There are minimum requirements. Obviously, by the time someone's ready to go for a blue belt or they receive their blue belt, they know a lot more. But the bare bones that I would expect every single blue belt that they'd be tested on that um, are a number of things. There are basically um, four positional drills. I'd like to give you an example of one, um, you know, basic basic single leg guard pass to side control, side control onto the mount, from the mount an upper escape, and then the other guy does it. That would be an example of one. So I have four of those. I've got four fundamental drills. Um, for first stripe on the white belt. Second stripe on the right belt, white belt is four sweeps and four chokes. Third stripe would be four arm bars and four Americanas and Kimuras. And then fourth stripe would be eight escapes. Um, because I think, believe heavily in working defense before blue belt. So yeah, there, there are all those requirements. I, I mean, that, that's obviously bare bones. Um, but, you know, they would also know plenty of other things. Like you notice that triangle is not included in there and omoplata and stuff. But by the time someone's done two years training to blue belt, which is on average two years, they know a heck of a lot more than those things. So that's like a bare minimum requirement, if you like. Are you really looking hmm. at those things, wanting them to be uh, fine-tuned and not have any mistakes, or you just want to see them, uh, that they're aware of them and then they could perform them at a, a proficient level? No, no mistakes. <laughs> no. Um, well, well, well. Let let me qualify that. When someone's going for their first stripe, you know, and they're just doing the four positional drills. Obviously, you know, I, as long as they can kind of get through it, I'm okay. By the time they go for their second stripe and learn, you know, they've got to show their four sweeps and four chokes, then I expect a higher standard of everything. And so at third stripe, again, arm bars and figure fours and kimuras, I expect a higher standard again. You know, so obviously I'm a little bit more uh, flexible at the very beginning, but I become less fle- more, less flexible as, as we go through. So if someone's been training for a year and a half, um, I would expect them to be technical, technically very proficient with all of those things. Now, if you can't see somebody uh, on a regular basis, can they go from no stripes to two or three or even a blue belt if they're able to perform all these at one sitting? No, we don't. I don't do that. They've got to go through it. 
I, I, I need, I need, I, and I do see everyone on a regular basis. So it's kind of, okay. but, <laughs> but, 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 um, no, I, I, I'm really, you know, I think every blue belt should know there are things they should know. It's like, you know, there, there has to be some, in my view, there has to be some standards and not just standards based on their rolling ability. Um, you know, the problem with that, of course, is that, you know, someone might have an awesome guard pass and side control, um, but they've got no understanding of guard play. You know, so I don't want it to be based on um, just their wrestling ability. Uh, I, I want it to be based on their knowledge as well. So I, they, you know, I, when I look at a blue belt in my school, I know he knows at least all these things. I know that looking at him, and then I build on top of that. So it's very important for me that uh, every blue belt knows these certain things. Does that make sense? Yes, it, yes, it does. Uh, moving on to the next question here, how important is it for a student to be able to defend their belt? That would rarely happen. I mean, it's possible, but in, in my school, it kind of doesn't happen that much. That it wouldn't. So you know, uh, anything can happen. Of course, you know, we we move left when we should have moved right, and things happen. And of course, the rule needs to be, you know, tap before you get injured. So it can happen, but it just generally doesn't in my school. I mean, I guess that's because someone's, you know, training two years to get their blue belt. So two years training, you know, they're reasonably efficient. The people that could tap them maybe would be, you know, a fourth stripe white belt who's just about ready to turn blue belt himself. And they're in my particular school, they're two different classes. Like I don't put everyone in the one class. There's a novice class, an intermediate class, and an advanced class. So, you know, someone that's like a third or fourth stripe white belt are in an intermediate class. And what I do with my intermediate and advanced class, which one one runs after the other, I let them share 15 minutes. So 15 minutes I let the intermediates come on and they share 15 minutes with the advanced class. So those, those fourth stripe white belts are – rolling with the blue belts and purple belts and brown belts and black belts for 15 minutes before those advanced guys then leave and go off and the class becomes just for the intermediates. Do you know what I mean? So so there is some sharing going on um, 15 to 20 minutes usually. So at, so the, the, on the odd occasion, I guess, you know, a four-stripe white belt, you know, you might snag a blue belt or someone, but it doesn't usually happen that much. But no, I, I'm certainly not. I'm not. I don't require that they defend the belt. It just happens to be that they, that's the, they do that. When you're uh, considering somebody uh, to get uh, a stripe or a new belt, it sounds like you've got mm. a lot of technical things that you look at. Do you ever look at the intangibles? Like, are they a good teammate? Do they have a good attitude? Are they helping their, helping others on the mat? Do those things come into play at all for the blue belt? For blue belt, yes. I mean, first of all, the culture that I've got going, on my mat, I'm pretty big on the culture. Um, so by the time someone's going to get the blue belt, they have either they have either adapted to our culture or they are no longer there. So you know, if, if someone's a, uh, if someone's like to take the worst example, toxic on the mat, I, I ask them to leave my school well before they get to that class. So so um, I, I've only got everyone that's on the board with the culture there. So usually those intangibles are all, you know, the, the culture stuff is already in place. Other intangibles, yes, like, for example, not only do they need to know the syllabus, but consider this, they've been rolling for, you know, at least 
18 months. So their rolling's usually fine. So what I, what I look for, if I had to pick one intangible for blue belt, say for example, I said, let's not have any techniques. What am I looking for in that blue, for a person to become a blue belt? The one thing that I would insist on is their ability to transition when a position or a move or a technique is no longer tenable. So for example, a brand new white belt will be trying to, um, you know, they'll be on the mount trying to, execute a Kimura, I mean, Americana, and they're getting put in the guard. And they're ignoring that, and they keep trying to do the Americana, and they end up in the guard. So they've been over-focused on what they were trying to do rather than assessing what's actually happening in the role and then changing their plan accordingly. So the ability to give up an untenable position and move on would be, to me, the the most important thing that would that would tell me that person's ready for a blue belt that coupled with knowledge of the curriculum those two things together does that make sense yeah that's uh, uh i really enjoyed uh, hearing about the untenable uh technique that you're trying and whether or not you should transition before it's too late and yeah that that makes yeah. a lot of sense yeah, let go and move on. You know, let go and move on. Like if something's not working, let go and move on. And when people start out, they are too much. Um, they have too much. Uh, we call ox's neck. You know, ox head, ox's neck, rat's head, ox's neck. You know that old saying no. comes from uh, Miyamoto Masashi's Book of Five Rings. Uh, to embody the the concept of the rat's head and the ox's neck simultaneously is really important one to get hold of. Rat's ox's neck meaning. You're all about intent, focus. Nothing's going to stop you doing what you want. Rat's head meaning I'm all about looking around, looking for other opportunities, keeping adaptable. Seemingly opposite ideas. So usually beginners have too much opposite, isn't it? You know, I want to do that, I want to do that, I want to do that, and they're not looking around at what's going on and what they need to do. So um, you've got to develop some rat's head in those people. So I want a balance of ox's neck and rat's head in the blue belt. I had never heard that before, but it, uh, the way you explained it, it does make sense. There you go. <laughs> John, do, do you ever regret giving somebody a blue belt? I, I, I don't regret ever having done that in terms of did they deserve the belt? Like, like, no, every, every one that blue belt that I can recall ever awarding was well deserved in terms of their training. And the effort they put in. Of course, there have been occasions because I've been teaching for quite a while over the last thirty years, where I've, you know, something's gone south with the relationship post blue belt. Um, and then, of course, you know, if I was to be petty, I could say, yo, kind of regret being involved in their journey at all. Um, that's a rare thing, Byron, and I understand it's over thirty years, right? So. Over 30 years, stuff happens. Um, so there's, there are people that I regret having had a relationship with, but no one I could say, you know, that person didn't deserve it. If, if it, I just want to make that distinction there. Yeah. I I think if looking back at myself as a blue belt, one of my big things, I didn't want to disappoint my coach. I didn't want to make them feel like that it was a mistake to give me that belt. And hearing this from you, uh, it feels like it's really not a problem that, that they should be uh, – particularly worried about oh no and in terms of are you are you more talking about like ability slash proficiency and all that stuff yeah like 
Yeah, right. <laughs> Look, I, I think, I mean, in terms of when I remember when I got my purple belt, I thought, there's no way I'm a purple belt. I'm going <laughs> to disappoint my coach. I'm already a disappointment. <laughs> like for, um, but I think a lot of people who, maybe even the majority of people think they're never quite ready for the belt. But I don't think the coach thinks that. And besides, not all people are equal, right? Everyone's different. And and someone who's training twice a week who's a businessman and some kid who's training 12 times a week who's got nothing to do, <laughs> um, I mean, they're, they're different people. So we can't expect the same level of performance out of those people. So I don't think, you know, we need to get too hung up on that stuff. It's are you the the best blue belt you could be, you know. I mean, if you were to make a silly thing and say, say, um, you know, blue belt, black belt was the worst you'd ever be and black belt was the best you'd ever be, which is not obviously not correct. But just to say that, then a blue belt would be, are you a, are you a quarter of the way there, you know, based on who you are? So if you're a 70-year-old man that starts out as a white belt, I don't expect the same level of performance as someone who's 18, of course. So I'm not so hung up on that stuff. I don't think anyone should be. That's good to hear. Uh, John, what advice do you have for the new blue belt? Well, I mean, I if I travel back in time and wanted to give myself advice there, um, I, I, would, I would have been better off. And a few things. One, the first thing, in no particular order, but let's say if you haven't already developed the habit of paying attention to detail, detail start now. So, like, you know, get into that habit. Don't, don't no longer sit. As of after a blue belt, it's no longer time to settle for big picture, broad strokes. You want to start to bury into detail and become a, 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 someone who appreciates nuance and detail. Uh, one thing that could help you do that, which helped me do that, but I didn't do it until Purple Belt, was by asking five simple questions for every technique I ever learned. What is the task of my right hand in the technique? say like talking about a, a flower sweep or something, what exactly is the function of my right hand? What's it doing? What's it contributing to the technique? Same thing for left hand, same thing for left foot, same thing for right foot. So that's four questions. What is each limb doing? And then on what angle to make it five questions? So if you, when I started doing that, you know, I couldn't help but have an 80% pass rate on what the technique was about, what made it work, why did it work. If I was really super clear on what does my right hand do, left hand do, right foot do, left foot do, and on what angle. In doing that, I think you're going to get a re- get your head wrapped around uh, the technique uh, in a much better way. So that would be, you know, really start to develop that habit. Always ask the five questions. Um, I, I, I would encourage all blue belts to embrace the suck. You know, like, like, don't put yourself in bad positions. You know, you might be rolling with some white belts. Well, find the white belt with the best mount, go underneath the mount, start there, find the white belt with the best guard, go in his guard. Start a bit, instead of avoiding the drama, embrace the drama. So embracing the suck, um, would be something that I think blue belts absolutely should do rather than avoiding the suck. Um, it, it's, it's also a good t- time to start developing a game. A basic game. 
Uh, I don't think people should develop a game before blue belt. I think they should get be focused on getting all the fundamentals down, you know, wrap their heads around the broad landscape um, of what BJJ is. Um, so don't, you know, don't, don't start developing a triangle game, you know, to the exclusion of everything else. As a white belt, I think blue belt's about getting the fundamentals down. But post blue belt, start to develop a game. Um, you know, and, and I guess if people ask what that is, have a, have a favorite passing idea, a favorite guard, attacking slash sweeping idea, and then a finishing plan for when you're on top. So that would be minimum three things. And maybe take down. So make it four. There you go. So, um, so I would, I would develop, begin developing a game. And fifth thing, so be, be, be the training partner everyone, everyone wants to roll with. So if it's time to pair up and roll and everyone's running away from you, you're not a good training partner. <laughs> if everyone's running at you, that's the person you want to be. So be that guy or girl, you know, be the person that everyone wants to roll with. That's a, Great way, a uh, great, great thing to have as a blue belt. If you haven't got that by before blue belt or purple belt, you've probably got going to have troubles down the track. A lot of uh, great tangible advice that people could act on, um, not just, you know, train hard every day, uh, things that people could actually do and start implementing now. <laughs> and, and the last one is a social one, which will help them uh, long term uh, have success and happiness on the mat. Oh yeah, yeah. That's pretty important because you need people to train with, <laughs> and, and, and the more people you can get to train with, with the widest variety of games and talents and skills, then, then the better off you're going to be. They're going to the better people are going to inoculate you against uh, the drama, and the people that you're not so that aren't as good as you um, allow you to develop and hone techniques that you already have or techniques you're working on. So we need, a, a, you know, a wide variety of people. It's hard to become really technical and good with four guys in a garage because everyone's fled from you. A lot of great advice today. Thank you, John. My pleasure, Byron. Wow, Gary, I was thrilled to get all these amazing people in our sport, in our martial art together and ask them these five questions. Tim Sled, Matt Thornton, Bernardo Faria, Daniel Koval, Henry Akins, and John Will. Thank you so much for stopping by the BJJ Break podcast once again and sharing your insight. Really uh, getting a pulse on the BJ community and seeing what's happening out there with just this one topic, blue belts. It's a deeper look. You can look into what they're doing at other belt levels. You can look at what they are uh, looking for in their students in general. Uh, the first question, do you have any requirements for a blue belt? Most had requirements. They all had things that they were looking for. And I think it, that, that uh, some of them said that they don't have necessarily requirements for further belts, but they really want to be particular about that first belt. It's so important to get a, a good foundation, to get the basics down right, to get the fundamentals uh, of this student's game developed in the right direction. So uh, I was really interested to hear that. And I know that there are probably people out there that teach differently than, than all six of these instructors, but uh, but they all basically had some sort of thing they were looking for uh, in their blue belts and different varying, different levels uh, of things they were looking for. But uh, I thought that was a, a good question, fairly consistent answers uh, from everybody. Yeah, definitely. Uh, blue belts, uh, you know, you do have to have the basics down. You have to be, uh, you know, solid there. And uh, 
uh, like you said, everybody has uh, was pretty consistent there. Uh, the next question, is it important for a student to be able to defend their belt? And this one, I really wanted to get the answer to this one because as a blue belt, I really did not want to get tapped out by white belts. I don't know if I did or not, but it was a priority of my training to avoid getting tapped out by white belts. So maybe I just smash them the whole time or do my absolute best. Every white belt I get, I'm going to really show them what a blue belt is like and do my best all the time. Or maybe I would occasionally avoid rolling with somebody who would give me a good uh, good battle, uh, one of those white belts that's getting close to blue himself or herself. I don't really remember what happened to me, but I do remember the feeling that I don't want to uh, get tapped by these lower belts. As a black belt now, I do occasionally get tapped up by somebody uh, lower ranking than me, and that's perfectly fine. <laughs> We're on the same team, but they're learning things. For me, I'm learning things from them. It's part of the process. We're not always fighting 100%, and even if we will, even if we were fighting 100%, I would still get caught occasionally. Uh, sometimes people's games match up kind of weird against each other, and that happens too. Uh, a lot of reasons uh, this happens. Uh, I think Bernardo said it, that this is kind of an old mentality to not tap to a lower belt. Uh, I mean, this uh, being, up, be, being willing to tap when you're in trouble, I think, is one thing that has kept, helped keep me and Gary on the mat and healthy. So, uh, you know, don't be afraid to tap when you're in trouble, even if you have a, a fancy belt around your waist and the person who's doing the, the attacking does not. It's not that big a deal. We're all training. Yeah, the key is it's not that big a deal. We tap, we're going to uh, be able to train a little bit more. And I think that was more of an old school thought. I, d I don't see it as much as I used to back when I first started. And, um, you know, it's great. I, uh, if everybody is worried about it, people want to get as good, they, they would be a, they'd be afraid to go with lower belts. You're not, you know, building your team up if you're not going with them. Uh, you know, we're all responsible for each other's each other getting better so uh we need to train and and if you train with everybody you're going to get tapped by everybody it's going to happen and uh just uh live and learn the third question how important are the intangibles being a good teammate putting forth a good effort helping others those sorts of things when getting a blue belt uh mostly consistent as far as uh, that this is an important thing. Uh, some said, you know, this is an important thing a little further down the road, you know, at the higher belt levels. But really, you put that blue belt around your waist, you really you put that white belt around your waist, and you're representing your gym. And if you're a big jerk on the mat, the odds are you're not going to get that blue belt. But the odds are even more that you won't even make it that long in the gym because they're going to they're gonna either deal with you by talking with you or they'll just run you off uh, physically, uh, by, be, by not being real helpful on the mat back at you. Uh, really, it's important to guard the culture of the gym. And that's really what I'm seeing out of this question is it, it is important. It is important to be a good person on the mat. It's important to be a good student, to be a good teammate, to help out others. And this is looked at, uh, when it's not like the deciding factor when giving somebody a belt. If you're just an average person, you're, you're doing, you're fine. But if you're coming and you're a big jerk, it sounds like most of the time you won't make it to the blue belt level anyway. So <laughs> this is it's individual sport, but you're working with a team. And if you can't uh, work with a team, the team's not going to work with you, and you need your teammates to help you get to the blue belt level. Yep. You know, Byron, I've always said you're a quality individual. You are a black belt individual. And uh, so, uh, you know, that just shows you Byron is a good guy. <laughs> <laughs> that has nothing to do with anything, but... Oh, Gary, I'll say this. 
Gary is two and a half levels of good guy ahead of me. So uh, take that, Gary. Your your random weird compliment. Uh, checkmate. Right back at you, my friend. Hey, you know, I will record that, and I will listen to that every morning. It'll there put me go. in a good mood. Put you in a good mood. Or you could just actually download the podcast and listen to that in the morning. <laughs> well, I am on the email list. Uh, if you guys haven't heard, we have an email list. There we go. Sign up at the website or the Facebook page. The fourth question is, do you ever regret giving somebody a blue belt? I remember as a blue belt, maybe purple belt as well, like really not wanting to disappoint somebody. Uh, here, in, here in Kansas, we don't have uh, – or, or back in the day, we didn't have black belts here in, in Wichita to train the whole time. So they would come through and it would be kind of affiliated with somebody and, and they would pass out. Uh, belts occasionally and different people would that's kind of how we've done things here now it's it's still different because we're we've we're more established here in the city but that's how it was so you wouldn't want your instructor to come in after giving you a uh, blue belt you know six months ago and you roll like an idiot and you feel like man i've really disappointed them so the question do you ever regret giving somebody a blue belt no the overall answer, well, no, I don't regret giving people uh, any of the belts I've given. So rest easy in your head as whatever belt you are, whatever stripe you have on your belt. Your instructor doesn't regret giving you that belt. Even if you have a down day, if you go into the tournament and get subbed right away, you know, like your instructor doesn't regret that. The odds, the odds are they don't uh, as, as far as looking at these six uh, individuals that we interviewed this time. There's nothing to worry about. So if you go to a tournament, I, I think that's part of the blue belt blues, why they quit. As they feel they're not living up to the expectations. This is just a wrong uh, thing to be uh, acknowledging in, in what you're feeling. Yeah, you could feel that. I feel like I'm letting my coach down. I feel like I'm not quite a blue belt yet. I'm, I had, you know, a bad tournament. I'm, I'm not doing, I'm getting tapped by other blue belts. These frustrations are, are real, but your coach doesn't feel like they regret giving you that belt. Just keep training. Just keep getting better. The journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. If you want to roll a thousand miles, you're going to go through a few geese getting there. You would have never became a blue belt if your instructor did not think you should have got the blue belt. So, uh, you know, he, he gave it to you. He or she gave it to you. You deserve it. That's all it boils down to. We, the last question was, do you have any advice for the blue belt? And really, uh, all over the place here, a lot of different advice, and it was all great to hear. Uh, so, uh, nothing, I mean, that, I didn't expect them all to say work on our bars, you know, or anything like that, but, uh, just a lot of great advice from everybody, uh, keeping your ego low, relaxing, uh, it's a time to kind of look into developing, uh, your game. Uh, I think John Will had some, you know, he, he wanted you to ask the five simple questions for every technique, you know, what's my right hand doing, my left hand, what is it doing, each foot, what is it doing, and then, uh, what what is the angle I'm trying to work here? Uh, that one you could when you're trying to learn something. If it's frustrating you, ask yourself those five questions. I mean, that's something that any belt can do. Maybe you're not picking up, you know, what what which something is which, which your left hand should be doing each time, and it's kind of throwing you off. So, uh, yeah, it, a lot of advice uh, from the instructors. I'm really happy to get that question in there. What advice do you have for blue belts? But uh, really, we can't just sum it up right now, Gary. And uh, th- that's just the way that each person we have on here is uh, sharing their advice to the uh, community, uh, to Blue Belts. Well, we can sum it up saying it was an incredible 
interview with uh, six fabulous black belts. Fabulous indeed, my friend. <laughs> but so thank you all the all the black belts that participated. Thank you guys for listening uh, to all these, and, and hope you guys uh, learned something. Whether you're a blue belt, a white belt, or just somebody who likes jujitsu, I think you learned something today uh, from every one of our guests. Gary, as we promised before, I'll go ahead and roll the mat tail. So sit back and relax, my friends, and enjoy. And enjoy Mouse in the House. This is Matt Tales. We bring you amazing jujitsu stories. The stories might be funny, unfortunate. It could be about an epic fail or an epic win. So sit back, my friend, relax, dry off your sweat from rolling, and enjoy Matt Tales. My son and I both have fallen in love with jujitsu. His class is an hour before mine, so I sit and watch his, and then he'll sit and watch my class. Well, during the kids' class, one of the kids got up and said that they saw a mouse. This caused quite a commotion. That's when my son chimed in and said, There's no mouse hole. How could we have a mouse without a hole in the wall? Well, I understand his logic, but I knew that he was probably wrong. Because I am good at getting rid of mice. And this was my time to shine. This was my declaration of war with the mice that have invaded our gym. I told the children I would go to the Walmart down the street and get some traps to get rid of our unwanted guests. The kids did not like this idea. They wanted a way to get rid of the mice without hurting them or killing them. I said I would see what I could do, and I left for Walmart right away. They still had 30 minutes left in their class, and I could get this task done before it was my time to get on the mat. And sure enough, Walmart had a special type of a trap that looks a bit like a tube. The mouse would go to the back of the tube, and the front of the tube would have a door that would trap the mouse safely. So I bought two of these traps. As the commander in this little mouse battle, I wanted to start aggressively with two traps took them to the troops, also known as the kids' class, and they were quite excited to set the traps in the location that they thought was the most strategic. During the adult class, the kids that stayed to watch their parents train talked a lot about mice and strategized about uh, what might happen during this mouse battle we had just began to wage. The next day, we showed up to class the same time as the instructor just to check our traps as quick as we could. And sure enough, we had two traps set, and we had two mice caught. Well, the kids that were there walked with me down the street a block or two, and we released the mice. While they were in the kids' class, I decided to go back to Walmart and procure another couple of traps with my experience with mice if you catch them that quickly, there will be more. The kids set all four traps in strategic locations, baited with peanut butter. We were sure to catch more mice in the night. The next day we came to class, and sure enough, four mice. This battle continued. 
catching a total of 14 mice. The only thing that really changed with this battle was I stopped taking the kids with me to walk the mice a couple of blocks to release them. No, I didn't kill the mice when the kids weren't looking. I ended up driving the mice to the behind the Walmart and released them there. I definitely did not want the mice walking back a block or two and getting back into their home. With the 14 mice caught and released in safe locations, a week went by without a mouse caught in our trap. We were all but sure our victory over the mice was complete. Until one of the kids saw a mouse. The child saw a mouse in the light banister. We have the lights that are the long tube fluorescent light bulbs that have a plastic piece that covers them from the room. Somehow, a mouse was in the ceiling, crawled through, and got into the light. The little guy was just hanging out in the light banister. Amazing. I, as a mouse war general, had never seen such a bold act by a mouse. Not to mention that the light was on when he was in there. Well, both myself and Coach are not in the type of shape of people that need to be monkeying around on ladders and getting into the ceiling. This is when, as a leader in this battle, I selected my own son to climb a ladder, get in the ceiling, and set our four mouse traps in the quadrant of this battlefield where the mice were making their last stand. He was up there for about two minutes. We heard a bit of commotion and a foot came through the ceiling tile. Now my son was able to catch himself on a pole that was up there and hang on. But he nearly fell through the ceiling. We moved the ladder, got him down safely, and put the damaged ceiling tile back in the ceiling. The next day we checked the traps, and there was one mouse caught out of the four traps. I declared a total victory on the battle we had with the mice, and my son noticed. Now we have no mice, but we do have a mouse hole in our ceiling. This has been Matt Tales. Some of the names and places may have changed. We may in fact have taken some creative liberties with the story. In order to keep Matt Tales going, we need more tales. Tales from listeners like you. Send your tales to bjjbrick at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing your amazing stories. Oh, man. Now they've got a hole in their ceiling. Now they have a mouse hole, Gary. The, the, the kid did it. If you're going to have a mouse, I remember that, like the old Tom and Jerry style, like the mouse yeah, lives the in a little hole in the wall. Yep. And if you don't have that, you clearly don't have any mice. You know, that that mouse did that. So at least uh, if they get more mice, they have a, a place where they could uh, have a little door. It's kind of in a weird spot. Have you ever really seen a, a hole in the wall like on Tom and Jerry? Because I never have. It, <laughs> yes, I have, Gary. Uh, okay. I've gone in some pretty bad houses that have lots of holes in the walls. Um, you could, you could mouse put a holes? Hole, not necessarily mouse holes, but, uh, you know, uh, maybe a hammer pokes a hole in a wall, a fist, a foot. Well, I was actually 
Meaning mouse holes, oh, like yeah. from Tom and Jerry. No, I have I have not seen a, a legitimate mouse hole that I know of, but I know I've seen uh, holes that mice use as uh, okay. methods of like a little subway, like a little mouse subway, Gary. Oh, that's kind of cool. Do they have a subway pass? <laughs> I, I believe it's called a urine trail. <laughs> oh, oh, hey, good one. But uh, that's about all I know about mice in the house. And uh, I'm glad our friends got their mouse problem under wraps and uh, delivered them safely to the back of the Walmart. <laughs> <laughs> if you have a Matt Tales, you got to send it in. Uh, we have one more I'm working on. I may not get it the next week, but uh, we need your funny stories, your humorous, your sad, your amazing. If something kind of like some weird turn of events happened to, to be good luck for you, they don't all have to kind of be these these bad ones. Not this one is really bad. It's kind of a weird story. But if you have a story like this, it involves jujitsu, your gym, your training partner, something like that. Uh, send it to us. Type it up uh, the best you can and send it our way, and, and we'll be happy to work with it and uh, make it into a Matt Tales. This segment is dead without you, my friends, and uh, we need you to keep it alive like the little mouse in the tube, still alive like Matt Tales. Yep. This uh, Matt Tales is dedicated to Richard Gere. <laughs> I have no <laughs> idea what that is, but okay. Um, Google Richard Gere and mice. Uh, is it some gross uh, thing? Yeah. <laughs> okay, I'll leave that on there. Uh, okay. Uh, some people will get it. Yeah, um. that was going a bit over my head, I believe, but uh, we'll see how that one gets on there. Um, if you enjoy Matt Tales, it's one of the highlights of this podcast for you. Good news is we have a BJJ Brick Fun Pack. It has 14 Matt Tales. One of them never aired before. So the first 13 are on there. A bonus 14th one. Uh, the one you heard today will not be available in the BJJ Brick Fun Pack. Uh, maybe there'll be a BJJ Brick Fun Pack Part 2 someday. Uh, the Fun Pack is $3.99. Those 14 Matt Tales and some of the highlights from the world's most interesting grappler are also in there. Check the show notes or the website for the link to the download. If you want to get a hold of us, bjjbrick at gmail is probably the best way. You know, we are also on Facebook, Twitter. We post on Reddit occasionally. I don't post every episode. I'm sure this one will make it its way to Reddit. But uh, uh, we get occasional messages through Reddit. I check them about a week and a half after I get them. So that's not the best place. I will see them eventually, but uh, I get an email. I'm usually seeing it within six or seven hours at most. So uh, email is the, probably the most consistent way. Uh, our Facebook fan page uh, is an all, another great way to get a hold of us. So uh, we like interacting with you guys. We like to hear what you think. Did we miss out on having a sixth question? Let us know what it should have been, and, and uh, it would be kind of interesting to see if you could ask uh, these black belts one more question. What would it have been? Uh, I'm kind of curious to see what you guys come up with on that one. Yep, and also definitely uh, if you do email us, let us know who you like better, Byron or myself. We're uh, having a contest to uh, see who gets more check marks. Uh, you know, I have a bet that I'm going to win, and he thinks he's going to win. So uh, we'll find out. Gary is ahead right now. I would also like to thank our Patreon supporters. Um, Patreon is a website for content producers uh, like ourselves. Um, and basically it's a way you can pledge a certain amount of money to do to each and every show, uh, as low as 50 cents uh, per show. Um, so it doesn't really hurt your pocketbook, but, uh, we appreciate every, all the support we can get. If you do have uh, means to support us, we'd really appreciate it, but definitely check out the link in the show notes to uh Patreon. 
Yeah, it means a lot to us when we get the support on there, and it has definitely helped us out and get past a few hurdles we've had in the past. Uh, another way you can help us out, you know, it doesn't all need to be uh, buying audio books and uh, supporting us on Patreon, is to tell a friend about the podcast. I'm sure you have a friend. You seem like a nice person. Listen to this podcast. You made it this far. You seem like a nice person. Uh, tell your friend what you've heard today. Say, hey, I just heard this thing about blue belts. You just got your blue belt. Check it out. Or you're maybe getting close. This might be some insight for you. Uh, they give a lot of great advice. As far as uh, these black belts, these sick black belts, not the not the people hosting the show so much, but uh, but the guests today provided amazing uh, advice and a look into what they're doing at their gyms, in their schools, uh, as far as blue belts. So uh, share it with your friend, share it with your coach. I mean, this is just uh, yeah. good to have. Speaking of another another way to support us, if you ever come through Wichita, Kansas, uh, send us a message, bjjbrick at gmail.com or our Facebook page. We'd love to roll with you, and we'll charge you an outrageous mat fee <laughs> to support the show. No, actually, just kidding. We will not charge a mat fee. We'd just love to roll with you. Yeah, we'll try to get you some free training here in Wichita. So we can learn from you. Make sure you do not miss our episode next week. We have another awesome episode, and I know a lot of you people, uh, a lot of our listeners, you know, nominated uh, a coach or a training partner for the coach of the year. So next week, we actually have the inaugural, the first BJJ Brick coach of the year ever, Larry Keith. So uh, Byron's going to uh, uh, talk to Larry, and um, so definitely do not miss that episode. Yep. Uh, his, he wrote, uh, he didn't write. One of his students wrote an amazing essay explaining what kind of a coach he was. Uh, honored to have him on the podcast and, uh, really learn from him and see what he's doing, uh, there. So great to have Larry Keith next week and I'm sure you will enjoy it. And always stay sweaty, my friends. <laughs> and, uh, don't forget to shower. Turn cool. the tables. Turn I it flip up. The switch. Flip the switch. Turn the table and, uh, barren bowl with me, Gary. Took my yep. We switched it up there. Yep. I'm glad you listened to this show. Like I said, this show is dedicated to Richard Gear. <laughs> Thank you for listening. I hope you find the time today to roll. After all, the best way to get better at Brazilian Jiu Jitsu is to do Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. <laughs>